0: Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert. our other co-host?
1: What's up, everybody? I'm the other co-host. My name is Drew, and you are listening to episode 149.
0: Ooh, that's a big number, because we are just one away from 150, and, you know, these big special numbers, uh, if we were key collectors, they'd mean substantially more to us, is the this would be the next episode would be the one that we seal and get cgc graded and uh (laughs) you know see if we can uh hype it and trick some doofus into thinking that it's worth infinitely more than it actually is
1: (laughs) yeah yeah we might have a couple dozen variant covers (laughs) exactly i mean it's worth something
0: to us on an emotional level
1: yeah Yeah. i mean us being us it's probably just going to be another regular episode (laughs)
0: Exactly,
2: exactly.
1: Equally as special as the 149 that have preceded it.
0: Well, I would like to say, though, before we continue, that this episode is kind of special in its own way because if the sound quality is a little different, this is the version of me that is remote dialing in to do this podcast and to but, haunt it like a specter from that's beyond right. the veil. Exactly. Albert,
1: Albert, you, you are currently on the moon. Calling in, and that's why there's a little bit of sound degradation. But it's it's just amazing that you made it into the moon. You made it to the moon, man.
0: Exactly. That's a dedication right here. Phantom zone, and I am calling out to Cal L, asking (laughs) him to save me from an uh, uh, an infinite life of torture and misery.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you just made it sound like. The Phantom Zone is reality
0: uh I think if you're me and you're just constantly in a state of non-being because i uh exist in a state where I'm a girlfriend and I'm forty, then I do exist in the Phantom Zone, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, dang, what a downbeat note to start this episode
0: about superman
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what'll cheer you up albert when you remind yourself that you recently obtained a cgc 9.8 lady death in lingerie
2: number one could my life get any better I, I, somebody out there who thinks that i'm
0: living I got that cgc graded lady death lingerie edition. <laughs> Oh man, uh, I can always tell myself my life might not be great, but I'm not that guy.
2: That's true. That's true.
0: Yep. This uh, this week we are continuing with our read through. We we are coming very close to the end. It is almost the end of the year, so you know we've been doing our monthly series of our read through of Gundam: The Origin, and uh. Yeah, this is a big one for us, um, you know, because we are at the, how do you pronounce it, the pen, pen- penultimate? Penultimate, penultimate,
2: penultimate volume,
0: the penultimate nullifier.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> you know, the only <laughs> thing
1: in the galaxy that Galactus is afraid of.
0: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it will penul, it will penultimate him.
2: <laughs> All right. Uh, there's a chance so,
0: I may be drunk too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> drunk on the moon, drunk in the phantom zone. Exactly. Wherever you yes, are, exactly. you're having you're having a good time. I just exactly. I just imagine you uh lying in bed in your bathrobe with a couple empty bottles of champagne around yourself while you're uh rubbing your CGC 9.8 Lady Death in
2: Lingerie. <laughs> or
0: what if the opposite situation, where I'm just in a crowded bar right now, just shouting at the top of my lungs about Gundam the Origin, while people just look at me in, like, fear, because they just think I'm a madman, because apparently I'm sc- I'm screaming into a Capri Sun packet.
1: Yeah, 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 you're just talking <laughs> out loud about Gundam uh, for a couple hours in, in a crowded bar, exactly. to no one in particular.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: Welcome to the
1: future, kids. All right. So today, as stated, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam, The Origin, Volume 11, A Cosmic Glow. This is, as always, written and drawn by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko and translated by Melissa Tanaka, published by Vertical in the U.S. So... Albert, before we dive into this volume and do our chapter by chapter commentary, do you have any general impressions that you want to share before we begin?
0: Um, I think I mentioned earlier at the top of the episode that we are at the penultimate episode. So, you know, things are quickly coming to a head. We've been priming the pump. We've been edging this for about 11 volumes now, 10 volumes, I guess and uh, now we here we are at volume 11 and you know things things are no longer uh, at the building point we are we are about to just go off on this and uh, this volume did not disappoint we are we are entering the phase of no return we are you know this is top gun right here man <laughs> this, this is where things are crazy I thought you haven't even Maybe. watched top gun I haven't but i'm constantly just quoting references that i'm not aware of at all <laughs> so you know, I I could have said this is Inception or something, and it would have been equally as relevant to me because it's kind of meaningless to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's funny because you've watched a lot more movies than I have, but Top Gun is like one of the few that I've seen that you haven't.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. As far as I can tell, uh, Top Gun could be about anything. It you know it could be about the life story of Smith and Wesson.
1: Yeah, you just tell yourself that.
0: <laughs> exactly. It's about him challenging all the gun manufacturers to become the top gun manufacturer in the world.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. We'll, we'll find out yeah. what happened to Heckler and Koch And uh, what else is there? Winchester.
0: I Yeah. I, don't, I clearly sure. <laughs> don't
1: know enough about guns to continue the banter here.
0: Well, with your lack of no well, okay, with our combined lack of knowledge of guns and my singular lack of knowledge of Top Gun, this uh, already is making for a pretty interesting podcast episode. <laughs> yeah,
1: maybe we should just stick to uh, talking about point- what we know.
0: Is <laughs> at this point where I'm really questioning my sanity and wondering if I truly am in a bar screaming <laughs> into a juice box? <laughs>
1: He's at a milk bar, everybody. A milk bar.
0: <laughs> but anyways all right Andrew, did you have any general thoughts seeing as how I mean we were on this journey together
1: I think what stood out to me is when you said just a couple minutes ago that things are coming to a head I immediately thought of uh, you know the final chapter of this volume because what you said could be taken quite literally
0: Hmm.
2: Hmm.
1: Hmm. but yeah you're right this is uh i can see that yeah this this is a pivotal volume and uh as somebody who's also familiar with the anime it's pretty interesting for me to see how differently it plays out i haven't watched the anime in a bunch of years now but i think the last time i i read this volume was probably like maybe five or six years ago. So it, the comics are actually more recent in my mind than, than the anime. Uh, but there are still some kind of big differences that I noticed. And uh, if you're interested, uh, I, I can talk about them a little bit later when we get to those scenes during our discussion.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no point in, uh, you know, spoiling it beforehand. Um, it's probably best that we wait till we get to the actual scene that you – Want to make your observation at so that we can, you know, kind of prepare everybody and all of our good listeners for everything that we're going through.
2: So Mm -hmm. I'm done
0: with that. Okay. Yeah.
1: Shall we get started with our commentaries on the chapters?
0: Let's go for it.
1: All right. Chapter one The Battle of Abawaku is getting underway with some preliminary skirmishes. Abawaku is a space fortress twice the mass of Solomon and it's Xeon's last line of defense. The Federation is committing its forces to this battle. Rear Admiral Watkine speaks with Bright to impress upon him the urgency of victory as if it weren't already apparent. When Bright returns to White Base later, he gives a speech to the crew before they head out for the big battle. Elsewhere, Cassilia and Char meet face-to-face on her ship. Cassilia recounts the recent events the fall of Solomon, the death of Dozel, discord between Degwin and Girin, the animosity between Girin and herself, and the fact that the war has now entered its decisive stage. She says that things are playing out exactly as Shar hopes and that his revenge is almost complete. She invites Shar to take off his mask and he obliges, confirming her suspicion that he's Casval Dakin. She demands to know his true intentions. But Shar says that after Garma's death he felt empty. However, he tells her that after becoming aware of the Flanagan organ's work regarding new types and meeting Lala, he changed and now he aspires for the dawn of the age of new types just as his father did. We cut to General Revel enjoying a meal aboard his ship. He gets word that Degwin Zabi is en route in his flagship Giran, ensconced in Abawaku commands his men to power up the solar ray, Xeon's massive colony turned giant laser. He gives them the targeting coordinates and the chapter ends with the colony laser
0: unleashing deadly energy.
2: Hmm. Yeah. First question it's, I got uh, for you I, go
0: ahead.
1: I wanted to know if you believe Shar's claims to Cassilia. Uh
0: I think so. I think from the things that I mean, if I'm understanding your question right, and if I'm remembering right, it right, um, from what we saw in the previous volume, this whole advent of the new types was kind of the the thing that lit a fire under Shar, because it really did feel like, you know, he was doing what whatever he saw as his life's mission, and, you know. He's slowly been you know knocking off the 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 various chess pieces that make up the zombie family, but um you know in the last volume, we see that he commits himself to the idea of the new types, so much so to the point where he gets a little fascisty about it, you know where <laughs> <laughs> when you start talking about how you know there are certain people that are better than uh, another entire group of people and you know it's your destiny to see them rise. Um <laughs> like, I think it's important for everybody to have a purpose in life. I just that's necessarily the best way to go about finding that purpose, but <laughs> I I would probably recommend that Shara like, you know, do some volunteer work, maybe, you know, recycle some cans or something. <laughs> yeah. That would have been but a healthier probably, way
1: to get revenge.
0: Yeah. <laughs> exactly he's probably got healthier outlets yeah but that certainly be just going through the motions at this point but he's still committed to his revenge but it just turns out that the overall revenge tied up into an even larger overall plot which is the elevation and i guess activation of this new species of human uh you know it, I guess you might say that it's a means to an end, where his goal of wiping out, you know, the uh, the the empire, just happens to coincide with his just being, you know, his dream, chaos, a, an agent of chaos, who who gets in the way as long as he gets his revenge,
2: uh-huh. you know
0: the. These two things just happen to overlap and it just happened to point him towards this new goal of you know what man cannot live on destruction alone man must be able to have an outlet for creation and i guess in his mind his just dis- the destruction of kind as we know it the the gateway for you know the creation of a new kind of man yeah. I don't know. What do you think? What do you think of that?
1: I th- I think I have to take some time to consider that cuz my my first impression was that I I just assumed he was lying to Casilia. I mean, th- I think he does care on some level about the stuff that his father uh the ideology that his father uh was a proponent of. And I I think there is some truth to the idea that Shard does care somewhat about the age of new types, but to me, it still kind of feels like revenge is his number one priority. And I think what yeah. I think what tipped me off to that was that he said meeting Lala changed him. But we already know that he's met Lala like before the war even started. So, mm. it, like to me, it, it felt like he already had some understanding or Maybe not as maybe back then when he was when they first met, maybe he didn't know uh, all of the all of the details about new types that he might have been able to learn at this point in the timeline after learning about the work that the Flanagan people did. But even back then, he had some idea and even some understanding of new types, and he recognized that Lala was special because I mean, she was using her. Her ability to help that dude in the uh, casino and stuff, right? With this sort of uh, right, right. ESP kind of stuff. So he already had some understanding of that. But it, it, it feels kind of more like meeting her didn't uh, change him from being this revenge-seeking individual into a, somebody who saw the bigger picture. It just kind of feels like now he, he can... Uh, kind of do both I guess but yeah, I still feel yeah. like I, I, I still feel like him saying that he felt empty after Garma's death <laughs> that yeah that, that felt like a lie <laughs> I'm pretty sure
2: he enjoyed mm-hmm. that
0: <laughs> well but then I'd have to ask what is him what is him lying achieved for him what does he gain from that exactly
2: that's a good question I think it probably helps him stay
1: in Cassilia's graces in the mm-hmm. sense that, I mean, obviously, if he says that, yeah, I, I felt so good killing your brother and I'm going to kill you next, she's going to react a certain way, right? <laughs> <But> <laughs>
2: okay, okay. <laughs> so it, it, That's like, fair. just for
0: the
1: the idea of, you know, self-preservation, uh yeah. i I feel like it makes sense for him to play it off and try to come across as more neutral, I guess or to make it seem like he's not actively trying to end her or anything and and she yeah. won't see him as an immediate threat
2: uh, okay i mean i I guess I buy that on
0: uh, a like logical level believes it but <laughs> okay yeah you don't what yeah, i mean I, I said i don't know if either of them believes it i, I like yeah i was casilia like this guy just committed his life to ending our bloodline it's hard for me to imagine that he just turns on a dime from that point but yeah no uh, i mean yeah, i, I that's, think that's
1: fair too because i i don't think that Cassilia is just taking him at va- face value she yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. has her guard yeah. up against him. She's yeah. still expecting some kind of treachery from him. But I, I but, guess it feels well, like, from her perspective, if she can still use him to exactly. for her own purposes, then she's willing to you know keep on letting him do his
2: thing. Overlook it. Exactly.
0: Because yeah. you're right. In a situation where the stakes are super high, this is essentially winner-take-all, um, you know, so you know what what what's that saying where you know uh, something makes strange bedfellows or whatever. Uh, you know, dire circumstances make for strange bedfellows. Politics. Um, I don't even. Uh, I'd have to look it up, but you know the the essential idea being that you know when in desperate times, like people will find allies in strange places I think it's and, and
1: politics makes strange bedfellows
2: Yeah okay that's the that common yeah. phrase Okay but that, uh, that makes a sense, quick
1: then. a quick Google search also reveals that strange bedfellows is a phrase coined by Shakespeare and its full context is misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows So
2: I guess there I have are to multiple ways of using it. Yeah. 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 But
0: I think applies just in the sense that you know whatever the needs of an individual are, uh, depending on how badly they want it, they'll, they'll they're likely to to Pretty dubious alliances if it means that they think that they've even got a shot at achieving their ultimate goal, whatever it may be.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's why
0: that's... people are constantly making deals with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Always a bad
1: idea to make a deal with Always the devil. Always a bad idea. That that's a exactly. recurring theme of our podcast here for 149
0: episodes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The, the entire uh, crux of our series was just to get to that point, to tell all of you, if you ever get a chance to make a deal with the devil, don't do it. It's a bad idea.
1: Yeah, it's a bad idea, just like Spawn.
0: Exactly, because he made a deal with devil, and he ended up being Spawn, and nobody wants to be Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> and the people that do want to be Spawn, you don't want to be like those people.
1: Another recurring theme of the podcast for 149 episodes, making fun of Spawn.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Did you have any other thoughts or impressions on chapter one?
2: Um, well,
0: yeah, it's, it's a thing where I do think that this chapter moves pretty quickly and pretty rapidly, and it's a tone that we're going to see throughout the rest of this book. Because, again, we're we're in the, the second to the last volume of this series. So things are just, you know, racing towards the end at this point. And, and you know, it's like we were saying. Uh, um, there's chaos all about. People are trying to do whatever they can to up being the last man or woman at the top of the heap when this is all over you know and if that means that Casilla has to overlook you know some logical things in order to make an alliance with someone who for all intents and purposes should be trying to kill them uh but if it means that there's even a slim chance that she can get what she wants apparently she's willing to do it
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah um and in addition to that i guess the one observation that i'll make is you mentioned at the end of the uh issue uh, of section that they released this new weapon that just obliterates the federation fleet right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and this is you know an observation i made in the last volume but it really does feel like in these last couple of volumes especially just each side is just coming out with. New, crazy, deadly weapons
2: that
0: just yeah. <laughs> function on this entirely crazy scale. And it's, yeah, it's another thing that points to the overall theme of just like war and technology and how, you know, we see that war is the great innovator that allows for these great technologies, but the technologies that we end up developing You know, there's obviously a potential for good, but there's even more of a potential for just uh, species-ending devastation, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Given enough time and technological advances, people will generally invent bigger and more fearsome ways to kill each other.
0: Exactly. When that first caveman developed fire, the first thing that he did with it was to burn down another caveman's hut
1: yeah yeah wait if the caveman lived in a hut wouldn't he be a hut man
0: (laughs) he's a he's a hut caveman he's a cave he you know he uh he moved on up in the world okay he he, uh (laughs) he, he he's in a new income bracket in his taxes and he's living the good life and He no longer has to be a cave dweller. Dang. Caveman society was more sophisticated than I thought. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Did you have any other thoughts?
1: Not too much. Uh, I assume that uh, you remembered how the end of uh, the last volume ended with, with uh, Degwin kind of going on his way and Girin, you know, it, it feels like this was telegraphed pretty uh, far in advance for us that he was willing to uh, sacrifice his own father just to get him out of the way.
2: So yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I
1: assume that wasn't a I assume that didn't shock you or surprise you in any way.
0: It didn't. It didn't. I I might be remembering it wrong, but was it uh, Girin or was it Kysilla? I think.
2: What,
1: what ended up happening was Casilia encouraged her father to sue for peace and knowing and that this was basically Giren like about
0: him going. right. Yeah.
1: And then she and then she told Garen where he was going.
0: Yeah. So really, they're both ter- terrible shats.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean,
2: it's
1: not like he's that much. It's not like the father's much better. But yeah, when you have a family like that, I, I guess that's the kind of stuff that ends up happening to you.
0: The tragedy for right and uh, you know having talked about Black Panther last week i I do see parallels in in these stories in that you know no one is necessarily a perfect and epic stories, but what ends up happening is you know under circumstances where there could have been a peaceful resolution to the situation, the tragedy of war is that those resolutions uh, end up being, you know, just cause for more tragedy and Mm -hmm. uh, a prolonging of the actual war itself. So, I don't know. Did you feel bad for Degwin at all?
2: No. Why, did you?
0: Not even, uh, a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to say that him suing for peace absolves him of his issues of, of of what he's done, but there there is like I said, there is something tragic about how how many people have already died, and this could have ended a different way, and for for him to die that way, I guess it just highlights the the loss of life even more.
1: Yeah, that's that's fair. But, that's fair.
2: Yeah, but. Hey, (laughs) at the end of the day, I guess he's dead. So he got his.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Shall we move on to chapter two or section two, as it's so labeled in the book?
2: Let's do it. Let's
0: do it.
1: All right. Section two. Degwin Zabi in his flagship is nearing the Federation fleet under Revel's command. As you remember from the previous volume of The Origin, Degwin was hoping to sue for peace. Just as he gets close to Revel's ship, the laser from the solar ray incinerates them all. Dozens upon dozens of explosions light up space as the bulk of Revel's main force is destroyed in one fell swoop. From the bridge of the White Base, our intrepid heroes see the explosions, and Amro comments, it's the light of hatred. And then... With surprising fury, he shouts We can't afford to let that light shine. White base holds steady to serve as a rally point for the remaining ships. Giranzabi, for his part, gives another one of his jingoistic speeches before his assembled troops in a bawaku, riling them up into a frenzied battle lust. Cassilia's flagship approaches the battle zone and her soldiers get to their stations. Lala, on her way to her mobile armor, stumbles into Shar and they share a tender moment in a side room. All of the remaining Federation ships regroup. Bright grimly acknowledges that they don't have sufficient forces, forces to lay siege to the immense battle fortress. The only way to win is to land mobile suits on a Bawaku and take it directly. Amro confidently re- reassures Bright that it's a plan sure to end in success. When Kai snarkily asks him if that's another new type hunch, Amro simply says, "Yes all right, so this is where we uh see all those deaths happen on screen, so to speak, with with the uh Federation and uh, Degwin Zabi getting incinerated by the colony laser uh." I think here I just want to talk about the the artwork and uh the way that Yaz colored this scene is pretty impressive stuff. Like I I'm not really sure how he did it, but it it really does have like this the lighting effect is just uh you know, it it looks like it's blinding like off the page, which is pretty unique <laughs> and Like, I don't think he uses, I'm pretty sure he he didn't use any computers or anything for this, but yeah, I do wonder how he achieved that effect. It's pretty, pretty awesome.
2: Yeah, it's, yeah, I feel like everything you've said
0: pretty much sums it up, it's, I probably would have said it was glorious if it wasn't so, just so <laughs> devastating. <laughs> yeah, it feels weird to
1: say it's glorious when it's really just a bunch of people dying. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it is
0: really well done for, for like, you know, for a moment of uh, utter terror and devastation. Mm-hmm. Like,
2: there's there's a weird
0: symmetry but there's i guess there's this weird conflict about it where you know you kind of come to expect war to be this ugly meat grinder and to see it as just this blinding you know almost ethereal light in the heavens there's yeah i don't know it's a weird it's it's two weird thoughts to hold in your head and to try to well, i guess
2: yeah,
1: yeah. Actually, uh, it reminds me of uh, the new Gundam series that's currently airing, uh, The Witch from Mercury. Because in the there's a prologue episode that takes place uh, maybe like a decade before the main series proper begins. And in that prologue episode, there's a scene. I'm not gonna say too much about it since you haven't seen it yet. But there's a scene in in that episode where uh i mean just take my word for it but there's like a little toddler who's inside a mobile suit uh and she sees these explosions from a distance and to her they're just like really pretty fireworks so she's like giggling and laughing and happy to see these beautiful lights but yeah we know that it's just mobile suits in a distance killing each other
2: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah
0: it's um War is some sobering, heavy stuff. and that, that might be, you know, being light or flippant about it, but I, I really don't have any other words for it.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. The thing uh, where we cut to the white base bridge and we have that scene where everybody's taken aback and shocked by all the explosions and the, and the beam... And then Amro says it's the light of hatred. We can't afford to let that light shine. That was a pretty interesting moment there like it it doesn't It's not that it feels uncharacteristic of Amro to say something like that, but it, there's there's a part of me that also feels like that's not just Amro saying that, but it feels like that could be Yaz saying that. you know
0: I could imagine that it's oddly poetic too, but yeah. It hits the right notes. it hits the absolute right notes
2: yeah it it really yeah. does
0: Um, I did want to talk a little bit about this one scene where Garen is you know just, yeah. he's basically just reveling in the fact that <laughs> this is it, guys, this is the one moment this is you know it's it's almost every speech that every dictator gives in exactly. in, in the moment where they think. That this is gonna be the moment where we win until you know things go wrong and until they gotta give the the speech again for the next uh, pinnacle moment for whatever happens, right? Right. And
2: it's a scene where it made me think
0: of. I think the first thought I, that I had was it made me think of Yertle the Turtle, which was a Dr. Seuss book that was a allegory about hitler
2: <laughs> okay okay
0: and, yeah and it was just i i don't really remember it too well but essentially the story of it i from what i remember was that there was this uh mad turtle who wanted to stack all the turtles something like that you know like that that was his goal was to stack all of his fellow turtles but He was willing to any any purpose or reason for it? I don't remember the specific reason as to why. Okay. It almost doesn't matter what the reason is because, you know, the the point was that this uh you know despotic turtle that (laughs) looks a lot like Hitler was his entire goal was, you know, to stack these turtles no matter what, and even if it was to the detriment of his fellow turtles but he wouldn't let anything get in his way because he just wanted to keep building this tower of turtles ever higher and then until ultimately uh, things go wrong and all of the turtles suffer as a result of, you know, the stoking of, of his, uh, you know, leadership or whatever.
1: Huh, but, I haven't actually, I've never read that one. I I need to check that one out. I don't remember it.
0: Yeah, that one was one of the ones that, it's it's a pretty allegory to to Nazism. Like hmm. I wasn't joking when I said that the turtle looked like Hitler. I I think that's that was very much on purpose.
1: Okay, yeah. But, now I, now I definitely got to look at that one.
0: But I'm looking at this scene, and it's it's there's an absurdity to it because you know here he is giving this speech and like rallying all his people, and it's not like this is. first time he's given a speech like that right and on some crazy level you can just imagine if if everyone in the federation and the empire was wiped out if it was just down to like people in the federation and two people in the empire giran would still give this speech to this one other guy that was left because you know in his mind this is it this is the moment once we kill these last two guys We'll be, we'll be done with it and we will be rulers of it
2: all. <laughs> you
1: know? Like he says, all humanity will soon know the truth that we, the people of Zion, are the superior race chosen by the natural <laughs> order of the universe. The only way to live on is under our guidance. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there were very good people
0: on both sides. <laughs> all sides. The shining light is proof that justice is on our side with the principality of Zion. <laughs> After that decisive blow, whatever remains of the Federation forces
2: merits that name. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: really merits. Oh, man. Now, now I gotta hear you do... <laughs> I, I need to hear you read Garen's speech in your 1920s Chicago gangster voice. <laughs>
0: See, all humanity will soon know the truth. See, yeah. (laughs) That we, the people of Xeon, are the superior race. Yeah, see, yeah. (laughs) Chosen by the natural order of the universe. You'll never get me, copper. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's exactly what Gear needs to say at the end of
0: every speech. (laughs) You'll never get me, copper.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a mint for you, see? Yeah. No. No still pigeons here, see? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Anyways.
1: What did you think yeah. of the scene where Shar and Lala share that moment to, together in that side room?
0: Where they embrace? Yeah.
1: They have yeah, they passionate... have... yeah, they embrace. They uh, exchange a few words of encouragement, and she tells him to take care of himself because... Like one of the things, like after they kiss and she, he's about to leave, she uh, tells him to. She's tell she says, please wear your normal suit in the field from now on. You know, like the the, the pilot spacesuit, right? Because usually every yeah. time we've seen Shaw, he just wears his normal clothes. Like it's like he doesn't ever. He thinks he's so good. He's <laughs> never ever gonna like get damaged or, you know, need a suit yeah. in case anything happens. But for his own protection, she, really... she tells him to do it.
0: Yeah. It feels like kind of one of those uh, Star Trek-isms where we're on this hostile planet. Let's take all of the leadership down to the planet to survey because, (laughs) you know, that's a wise decision on the part of the leadership.
1: Yeah, he's never worried about getting shot down.
2: I had to say, um, it's a scene that
0: is drawn pretty convincingly uh, in the sense that you know, you believe that the passion is real, but if I had to say, I also believe that Shar is enough of a sociopath where he might be acting out the part of a concerned person, you know, uh, of a person who's concerned for Lala, but deep down inside, it if I had to guess, I'd assume that really just playing her emotions because he knows he needs her. And I don't think, well, okay. I guess part of me I know is also, now that I think about it, shaped by what I know comes later. Mm -hmm. But I I, I was initially going to say that I don't think he really cares for her at all beyond, you know, what she can do for him to achieve his goals. Mm -hmm. but but yeah uh i mean that was my initial impression and uh you know when we get to it later maybe we can unpack that a little more but yeah
1: definitely definitely
0: what what do you think
1: yeah this was a it's a pretty pivotal moment uh for char especially uh, but also just for gundam as a story i think the fact that uh we get this pretty extended scene it's like several pages long uh without being you know we don't it's not cut to another scene until the whole sequence is over uh and we get a whole splash page of them kissing it definitely feels like it's meant to be more poignant too like it's not just something where where uh we just look at it and it's like, oh, Shar's up to his old usual tricks again, and we just move on to the next thing. But it, there's there's a an element to it where I feel like we're meant to look at it and question ourselves whether he is up to his usual tricks as a sociopath mm-hmm. or a so- psychopath. I always get those confused. Or is he actually does he actually feel something for her? And it yeah. like she clearly feels something for him, like lala's so yeah pure and and yeah innocent and and kind like thinking about him but the i i guess one of the interesting things about this scene is when it ends and and she tells him to put his normal suit on and he actually does do it and you know he that's not something that he normally does and it seems like he only does it here because she tells him to even though it's it's not like like he easily could have just said, "I will," and then not done it, but not done
2: it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he does. So I, that that feels like an interesting decision uh, on Char's part.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That page where they kiss yeah. too, on page sixty—that's a good drawing, man.
0: It is. There's something about it where, I mean, I know they're in space, but the fact that they're kissing and Lala is floating off off the ground like that. Yeah. There's, it's it's saccharine and it's sweet and it's kind of funny at the same time, you
2: know? Yeah, totally.
1: Yeah. It it's yeah. fun to see how in, in Gundam, whenever they're on these spaceships and stuff, there's always a, a lower gravity environment to it. So people are able to kind of bounce themselves off walls and, and float a little bit. Or, if you know, if they want to, they can still try and walk like normal, which is which works. But that's why you see those yeah, soldiers yeah. on the in the hallway. they're they're uh, not running down the hallway. They're just kind of they're grabbing onto these things <coughs> that are connected to the wall being uh, carried along uh, because it's quicker than than walking. I feel I feel like it's maybe something that that is conveyed more smoothly in in animation. I guess because I've watched a ton of Gundam, I already like put the put the movement in my mind as I read the comic.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah, that's a that's a good drawing on page 60. Just the the, yeah. the way that they're just in the doorway being being perfectly framed and how she's just floating with her toes pointed <laughs> down. It's uh it's a good <laughs> composition and just really nice line work.
0: Yeah. I do think it's also a good moment just amidst all this chaos, you know, to, to interject this just moment of humanity. You know, yeah. Lala is a character that I've come to like quite a bit. And it, it, it's, it's it's one of those writing conventions where, you know, a writer does a lot to certain characters more likable than others. And deep down in the back of your head, in the back of your mind, you know that it's all in preparation to just have your guts and your heart ripped out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. For someone who's not in the story that long, she's someone who leaves a heck of an impact. Yeah, yeah. She's, uh,
2: she's pretty likable. Pretty likable. Mm-hmm. You ready to move on to section three? Yeah.
1: Section three. On Earth, at the Federation headquarters in Jabro, military leadership meets with Federation government officials. The politicians are in a panic, having learned of the losses of Revel and most of his fleet. The field marshal tells them that they have a 50-50 shot of winning the battle. This isn't good enough for the politicians. The field marshal calls Rear Admiral Watkine on the vid screen, and he tells them that the plan is to attack head-on with everything they've got left, and allow their mobile suits to land on a coup. After the transmission is cut off, the politicians are not filled with confidence as Watkine spent half of the war quote, twiddling his thumbs on Luna 2. As the remaining Federation forces in space prepare for the coming battle, everyone reviews their equipment. White Base has received an additional mobile suit, a new gym with reinforced armor. Because they're going to deploy everything they've got, Bright asks Selah to pilot it, and she affirms her ableness and willingness to fight against what is ostensibly her homeland. After Bright heads to another part of the ship, Mirai confesses to Sayla that she was the one who suggested Sayla pilot the new gym, and Sayla says that because of the way Bright just spoke to her, she truly feels like part of the crew. As all the pilots gather on the port deck, Amro catches Fraubo, telling her that Hayato is going out in the spare gun cannon and that she should meet everyone else on the deck. After another roll call, in which Amro is, as usual, late to arrive, they get the final mission briefing from Bright. In what has to be his most impassioned and rousing speech yet, he tells them that the final battle will come down to the mobile suits. As many of them as possible need to plow through the enemy, touch down on a balaku. And, as he says, clamp on, keep gnawing deeper into the fortress, and deeper, gnaw your way through the core to Giren's command center, and chew it up till we taste victory. This is our final mission. No one comes back until the battle is over. Shortly after that, all of the assembled Federation ships launch all of their mobile suits and starfighters, The Zeon defenders, including Char and Lala, exit the fortress in their own mecha to meet them in space. The chapter ends with White Base launching all of her mobile suits with Amro and the Gundam at the vanguard of the attack. So it's another kind of gear up for battle sort of plot in this chapter where we uh, get a lot of build up. I do like the opening scene where we get that little sequence back on earth and it's the politicians and the i guess the field marshal who's so far from the battle like he's not really doing anything it's it's interesting to see that at play uh in the as a counterpoint to where all this death and destruction is about to take place
0: yeah it's another interesting chapter of just them i mean i don't know if it's quite where you know we're where I would call it like a slice of life or anything like that but it, it is a moment of calm before the storm right where we're seeing all these various aspects as they prepare for this big uh final push and you know it's a reminder to us that the people that are ordering all these soldiers to their deaths they we they put their faith and their trust in them, but you know, again, it's just another indication of their ineptitude and their callousness for human life by yeah. just how uh, caring they are about these these lives that are about to be spent. In addition to that, you know, we have these other good moments where Sayla this turn from just a few volumes earlier where they find out that she is the uh you know the the empire's royal family and there's all this suspicion and mistrust about her and to finally be put in this to have this moment where she talks about how bright talks to her and reaffirms to her that she's part of their team and their family mm-hmm. that's that's pretty inspiring, you know it is man uh, yeah that, that's that's a good, good moment for her. yeah, absolutely yeah, it really and, is, and then and then you know on top of that, yeah, there's all this rousing stuff where i I know we we spend a lot of time and energy kind of dissecting this book uh for for all the subtext and whatever, but uh it's still just great heroic story about war you know whatever your attitudes on war may be i i think people can hold two thoughts uh two opposing thoughts which is war can be awful but you know the people that fight in these wars and who try to do what's right and what's good uh in spite of whatever awful things they do um there's a nobility and a courage and a bravery to it uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm that's that's undeniable you know yeah it's war war is just a, a weirdly complicated mishmash of circumstances and emotions that are just constantly going on and uh yeah i don't i don't i wouldn't say that unless someone takes a really extreme position like it's, it's hard for me to say that you know any one particular take on it is a hundred percent wrong or right, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a good, you know, this is a a good stirring, you know, moment that reminds you that this is a war comic and these are heroes that are about to go off and potentially die.
1: Yeah, Wright's speech here is pretty intense. Feels yeah. like it's the the most intense we've seen him at least in a long time. Uh, if not ever it's the yeah. kind of thing that makes makes me wonder oh man if you were a football coach dude i, I would get out on the field right now and <laughs> tackle somebody
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well it's just another moment that also reminds me of like what i do like about bright where again for this dude who for all intents and purposes is a pretty reserved company man most of the time like his commitment to his work and his final objective, like that's unquestionable, you know? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so. a really good moment for Bright, I think. And as a just as a fan of Bright, the character, I like I like it when he gets these moments to shine. And this is definitely a yeah. shining moment for him.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like he and may
1: be relegated He may be relegated to the role of playing middle management throughout most of the story, but obviously when push comes to shove, he's proven that he has what it takes. Probably, definitely better than a lot of the people who are above him on the pecking order.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that juxtaposition makes complete sense, right? Because here he is just kind of, like like we said, middle management, and in the scene prior to that, we see the people at the top, and they're just, mm-hmm. you know, just <laughs> trying to CYA, you know, trying to cover their own butts. So yeah, there's exactly. there's obviously a difference between these two kinds of leaders. And mm-hmm. it's it's funny that you um uh mention, you know, uh a lot of the times how how these war stories take the perspective that it's the people that are on the ground, they're the ones that are you know, they're the ones that are making the hard choices and that are living and dying for, for
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, for the people, right? And it, it reminds me of another another example of that is, uh, you know, I'm going to ruin, uh, I want to say season two of Game of Thrones, but <laughs> the spoiler, uh, there's, there's that scene at the end of season two. I, I think you watched up to that point where uh, – mm-hmm. Stannis Baratheon is invading King's Landing and Tyrion is,
2: you know,
0: they all think that it's going to be a butchering. So we're just going to put Tyrion in charge because, you know, when things go bad, we can just blame him for how bad things went, right? Exactly. (laughs) But here he is. He's really not the ideal kind of hero that you would imagine. And he finds a way. To like step into that role and he steps up and he becomes a hero, you know and that that is one of my favorite scenes in Game of Thrones where he he gets up there and he, he tries to rally the men, but he knows that it's futile and he knows that he's not especially good at giving these kinds of speeches because he's never had to give these kind of this kind of speech before. and he just looks at the men and he goes, "Outside these walls are the brave men kill our women and our children. He goes, I hate brave men.
2: And then that's <laughs> it. <laughs> that's essentially it. <laughs>
1: yeah, that was good.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> and the way that Some... the, this mission plays out, it's just so grindy too, because they're not going to have the support of ships. It's It's literally, everybody get into your suits. We're going to fight this, you know, section by section, mobile suit by mobile suit. So yeah,
2: hard. yeah,
1: exactly. They've got to go straight into this giant fortress and land on it, and then fight all the defenders that are, you know, on it and in it, and then make their way inside. It, it, it feels like almost this impossible task. Like, if they don't yeah, have absolutely. enough mobile suits in general just to throw at this thing, it, it feels hopeless. You know, it's, it's almost like, not maybe not quite like the Death Star in Star Wars or something, but, uh, you know, something along those lines where it, it feels like the Federation just needs to throw tons of bodies at this thing and hope that somebody gets through.
0: <laughs>
2: right, right.
0: <laughs> because that's leadership. It's like, <laughs> it doesn't matter how many bodies and people I waste as long as we achieve the goal.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be honest, though, that's how a lot of big battles are fought, though. When you know that there's a like a landing point or some piece of territory that is absolutely essential to continuing towards your goal of winning the war, the other side is going to be I'd defending wavering. that with everything they've got. So, yeah, you know, it's it's uh it's like a lot of battles in, in history, whether you think of uh, Normandy or Guadalcanal or whatever. Yeah. It's sometimes yeah. it is just a matter of having enough people to throw into the thresher.
0: Meat grinder. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, man. Totally.
1: But speaking of the people, I, I do appreciate how this chapter gives us some pretty nice moments with other members of the white base crew. Like uh right around like page seventy seven and the next couple pages, we get some scenes of the crew milling about and there's a fun scene with Kai and Hayato where Kai's extolling the virtues of the gun cannon, the mobile suit that he's been piloting this whole time, and Hayato's about to go out in one of his own. Um, yeah, they're just they're just small moments, but they're endearing character moments, and yeah, I, I love Kai, man. He always gets great lines.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Often treated as comic relief, but... I do think that the uh, court jester is always allowed to speak more truth than many of the other characters.
2: Yeah.
0: It's, it's like you said, um, you know, these, these little moments are, are pretty fun. And just, again, it's just this thing where we get a moment of levity before things just really go off. Mm -hmm. And i don't know it's it's a good mixture of emotional moments it's bittersweet it's bittersweet is what it is
1: yeah exactly because in the back of your mind you're you're thinking this could be the last yeah they're able to uh, have these kind of
2: moments together
0: (laughs) who's gonna be left over when this is all over
2: (laughs) yep and then uh let's see oh.
1: i'm looking at page uh 92 there's a, a splash there with the federation fleet launching its mobile suits that's a pretty good drawing too man just all these yeah.
2: uh mobile
1: suits out in space it it makes it feel like it's gonna be a huge battle
0: yeah that's a stirring final note or final scene to end the the section on just you know watching them all charge off into the
2: unknown Mhm. Mhm. i dig it Shall we move on to section four? Let's.
1: The battle is joined as massive amounts of mecha engage in life-or-death combat against unrelenting foes. Sela wonders to herself if her brother is at a Bawaku. Battle rages on and explosions are everywhere. Somewhere in the battlefield, Lala, in her Elmeth mobile armor, is laying waste to Federation mobile suits. Amro senses her presence and they are drawn to each other on the battlefield. Shar in his Gelgug, isn't far behind. Shar says that Shar says while he had hoped they could come to an understanding, it's too late now, and he and Amro engage in violent combat. Lala fights, but doesn't take joy in it. She laments that she and Amro met too late, and now she's got to kill him, or else he'll kill Shar, and she can't have that. With his new type sensitivity, Amro is able to fend off the Elmeth's weaponry, much to Lala's consternation. She asks him how he fights like a devil when he he has nothing and no one to protect. He has no home, no family, and he loves no one. Amro responds, so what? What has that got to do with it? The chapter ends with a portentous shot of the Gundam facing off against the Elmith. so very action-packed uh chapter here but the biggest thing i think is the interactions between amuro Shar, and and lala
0: yeah there's it's definitely a fast-paced section and we do see a lot of that conflict going on uh like the it's definitely front-loaded with just a lot of explosions and, you know, uh chaos and you know, I like the art in the book, but there are times where I'm not and, and I think this is by design, but I'm not entirely sure what's going on because again, the nature of space combat is just that, that well, the nature of any combat is already crazy in and of itself, but uh space yeah. combat just adds that extra level of craziness because you know it's, it's you can get
1: disoriented very easily
0: exactly exactly at least and with the
1: ground it, battle you have uh scenery and landmarks to kind of help you yeah you can see exactly you can kind of have an idea of of the distance between things and where things are in relation to other things whereas in space you could be you know upside down relative to whoever you're fighting and it's all just uh 360 degrees
0: exactly exactly and the way that the gaugug is uh it's it shoots out these little probes that, you know, blast on its behalf. Yeah, and, the uh,
1: that's the Elmeth.
0: Oh, yeah, that's the Elmeth. And watching yeah. that, that, that that was a element of confusion because it's like you have no idea where the lasers are coming from at that point.
2: Yeah,
1: you I know? mean, to be fair, I don't think Amro has an idea either. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: it's I mean not, he, he might have it's some really idea exactly better than exactly. others because uh, regular soldiers, they just get chopped up by those things and he's at least got some yeah. reaction time but yeah like those things are those things are super deadly in a one on one battle like exactly. you can't you really can't uh they're too fast basically you have to have yeah extremely precise aim to shoot those things down cuz they're small too
2: yeah
0: yeah it just makes it that much more difficult it's a pretty crazy design for like I don't even know um, if the Esplit counts as a mech at this point, because it's, it's more like a ship with... Yeah, yeah I think he you know, uh, says little, that it looks like
1: a tricorn hat or something.
0: Yeah. But, yeah, and and I do like that amidst all this chaos, they are able to have this existential conversation be- between the two of them, because, you know, they're both new types, and... I guess it's fair to say that they're sensitive enough to one another that I don't know if they're having these like fully drawn out conversations or anything but you know there's certainly enough going on that they have a sense of what the other person is communicating right
2: mhm mhm uh
0: with Lala talking about how it, it's weird to think that she can question how why uh, Amuro would fight so relentlessly when because he doesn't have anything but if you look at her and you go well what does she have and for her answer to be well I have char it's it, <laughs> it's it's a pretty weird like I get it but at the same time I don't necessarily agree <laughs> with it
1: so I'm guessing that if I'm guessing that you would never lay your life down to protect Shar Aznable.
0: I, I no, I probably wouldn't. Uh, I don't think, you know. He, I'm sure he's a. He's he's obviously shown himself to be a charming dude. I don't know if he has enough charm to win me over to his side, where <laughs> I would get butterflies in the stomach and I would question someone who's just fighting for survival, and say and ask them. Why do you care whether you live or die? You don't have anyone. I have this sociopath that I love.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's also kind of presumptuous in a way. It's like, dude, come on. Amro. it's not like he has nobody. He has his family at the white base. They're They're a found family, but we've definitely seen that over the course of the series, he's formed relationships and built bonds with the people there. I don't know. I guess there's still something about what Lala says that that hits home for him.
0: But I also think there's an interpretation of what she's saying in that in that moment of desperation, where you know things are getting heated. I can imagine someone not necessarily being able to put themselves in another person's shoes and just looking for any reason to try to convince themselves that this person. I'm fighting for life and death. Just lay down and die because I have someone that I love. Yeah. <laughs> that means I'm more important.
2: <laughs> I have the high ground. The moral yeah. high ground.
0: Those things where in the heat of the moment, sorts of things are going through your head. And in order to survive, I'm sure everyone is telling themselves what they need to know what they need to hear in order to believe that they're righteous and they're the ones that should survive Mm -hmm. but but that's what survival is right is it, it, it survival doesn't care whether you have someone that loves you or not because i mean i guess it's the great equalizer in that sense right
2: right
1: I do like how the chapter ends too, where uh, she says, You love no one. And then Amro is kind of taken aback for a moment. And then we cut to the scenes of the wider overall battle. And you see, you just see all of these explosions. There's a bunch of chaos, like on pages 132 and 133. It's just the backdrop of the space fortress while all these mobile suits are blasting each other and you see little mobile suit parts floating around in space from all the damage. And then it ends with Amuro saying, so what, what does that got to do with it? And then you flip the page and you just get this silent spread or a sp- silent splash page of the Gundam facing off against the Elmeth. It's, it's pretty, uh pretty classy s- storytelling, man. And the, just the, heavy inking on on the uh, mobile suits in the battle. I like it, man. It it looks good. It's just Wait. uh it's got texture.
0: So, are you saying that Amuro was saying to her what's love got to do with it? <laughs> got to do with it? What's love? I I, I
1: guess I am saying that. <laughs> <emotion>?
0: <laughs> what's love? And emotion.
1: <laughs> What's love got to do with
0: it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, di- I didn't see that coming, man. <laughs> That's funny. Gentlemen,
0: the great Tina Turner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if if uh, Tina Turner's music survives to Universal Century Double O Seventy Nine. <laughs>
0: I don't even know if people really even think about her music now.
1: <laughs> that that's
0: that's fair. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> you just
1: you just took a shot at Tina Turner. What did she ever do to you?
0: No, I mean I'm just stating the reality of the situation. You know, it's just uh like might be more people that remember her from Mad Max Return to Thunderdome <laughs> than <laughs> for her, her music. music. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Uh but yeah, I I mean you know I appreciate her. Okay, okay. I have remembered that uh, that lyric if I didn't.
2: <laughs> All right, shall we move on to the next section? Let's do it to it.
1: Okay, continuing right where the previous chapter left off. Amro demands to know why he can't fight if he's not protecting anyone. Lala says it's unnatural, and when Amro turns the question back on her. She says she's fighting to protect Shar, the man who saved her. Amro is taken aback by her certainty as they seem to continue their conversation in a psychic landscape. They both lament the unfortunate timing in their lives and the circumstances around their meeting. But eventually, Shar tells Lala to quit fooling with Amro. He fires a shot at Amro, and they engage in close quarters combat and duel ferociously with their beam sabers. Amro eventually pulls off a trick with the Gundam's shield, taking Char by surprise. But right when Amro thrusts the killing blow at the Gelgu, the Elmeth flies in between them, absorbing the beam saber, much to Amro's horror. Lala's helmet cracks as the Elmeth begins to explode. Okay, so this is the scene uh, that is a little bit different in the anime. Um, and it's not terribly different, but it, it was different enough that I noticed it. And I haven't watched the anime in quite some years. But in, in the anime, during the Battle of Abaku, Sayla doesn't actually go out in a mobile suit. She doesn't have that reinforced gym. She actually flies out in her, uh, I think it's the core booster or a core fighter. Basically, you know, like the, the starship that... The starfighter that she normally pilots, like when Slugger Law was alive, and in the anime, like Amro and Shar are fighting, and she sees her brother, and she's trying to interfere in the battle, and she flies, she does a flyby while Amro and Shar are dueling, and Shar, uh, like slashes at her plane and like chops off a wing or something, and then she's still kind of buzzing around, so he's gonna finish her off, but then. Uh, Lala realizes that that's his sister, and she tells him not to lay the killing blow. So he hesitates, and then right when he hesitates, that's when Amro is about to like finish off Shar. So Lala gets in between and takes in takes that blow and gets killed. Huh. So yeah, it's it's not huh. super different, but the element of of Sela being involved uh, was in the anime, and it's not here. I don't think it detracts anything but I, I do think that both versions are pretty interesting in their own ways
0: yeah it's interesting that you brought it up i didn't know that uh, about the the animated version uh compared to the uh actual version or the 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 manga ver- manga version yeah um i'm kind of curious whether like you said it doesn't really sound like a big di- difference but it I don't know sitting here as someone who's just kind of taking this all in for the first time it does actually feel like a big difference to me. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's something that if it was an element to that was removed to re- to remove this sense of ambiguity of like is Amaro like truly a pure hero in that sense or not, I, I, I don't know. You know, I, what, here, let me put it this way. I'm kind of curious as to what your interpretation of their removal of that scene is, what, what that does in your mind.
1: Personally, I think Yaz changed up the scenario so that we could have the sailor stuff that he does later in this book. I think okay I mean it feels like he still could have done that and left Selah in this scene so maybe maybe that's not the my that maybe my reading of it isn't correct uh but yeah I'm, I'm not I'm not entirely certain maybe he just wanted to give Selah the chance to have the uh scene where she's in a mobile suit uh you know doing well on the battlefield because that's not not really something that she got during the anime, so maybe uh, maybe it's because of that. I I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd, I really I'd be curious to see if there were any interviews with Yaz to to learn if he had any particular reasoning behind this part- between this uh, choice. Because cause mm-hmm. part of me does mm-hmm. like the idea of Sailor being part of the fight. Just the idea of of Shar. Almost killing his own sister, but being protected from that by lala who who ends up sacrificing herself when Amro is about to kill him uh, mm. so like when you remove that element, there's a, a i guess it removes a bit of the extra drama on top of the drama that's already in the manga right now um but yeah i I can't really think of why he made that decision. I don't know. Would you think hearing my description of it, you think you would have preferred it uh with Sela in this scene?
0: Actually now that you've uh you know sorted it out, it does feel like maybe it wasn't overly complicated the way it was before, but there is less there's one singular Element of complication left less to to the situation. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: on the one hand, you're removing that added element of drama, but on the other hand, it is a more streamlined story, I guess. Um, yeah, because again, like th- things are just happening at a pretty chaotic clip at at this point in the story. So.
2: Yeah, yeah I don't like know.
1: everything else is I, is pretty much I, the same though. Like the the conversation between Lala and Amro, all the all this cosmic stuff, like the the backdrops and stuff. That's actually in the anime, or at least in the movie version of First Gundam. So you know, this is like early '80s. If you, I, I just rewatched that clip on YouTube uh, last night after I I uh, reread the comic, and it's. Pretty impressive animation for the 80s, and the colors and stuff. It's maybe it doesn't quite match the vibrancy of how Yaz colored it, but you can see how he used the original anime to, uh, you know, as the basis of what he did here in the manga, decades later. So the, the the conversation is essentially the same, and you still get all the cosmic backdrop. There's the the water imagery uh the stuff with uh how it looks like she's she's floating and the swan imagery the the cosmic stuff you know like it's it's so trippy even uh on page on pages one sixty five and one sixty six when you have those two pages where they show this these uh unusual landscapes and there's these uh words uh that are lettered with yellow font. Those are the song lyrics of the lyrics that played of the song that played during that scene in the movie. So, he, like, it, it's it's definitely like one of the big classic moments of Gundam. Like when when people talk about first Gundam, this is definitely one of the scenes that's considered, you know, a highlight of the whole original story. You know, it's like a big moment, and I think Yaz went all out trying to capture that moment in comic book form
0: right right i was gonna say this though uh seeing as how this version of it is my first exposure to it Mm -hmm. i i will say that i'm fine with this version i'm i i guess i'm curious to someday watch the series and see how i feel about that version of it uh you know in the context of everything that i already know about the series from what i've read you know yeah but like the the version i got i don't feel like i was robbed of anything
1: yeah definitely robot, not you
0: know like yeah so yeah
1: yeah yeah i i definitely don't feel like i I was robbed i just thought it was interesting to see that that was a, a change that he
2: made yeah You uh, have any other observations?
1: Uh no, we can move on. I mean I kinda got ahead of myself uh for a moment talking about the the cosmic stuff, uh but uh yeah, that's in uh, chapter six if you wanna move on to that.
0: Sure, let's do it.
1: All right. We're dragged into what I can only describe as an aquatic cosmic dreamscape. Amro sees a vision of a graceful swan before an ethereal Lala tells him, people will change like we have. Amro tells her that he believes her because the two of them are able to read each other. Someday, Amro says, people might even be able to control time itself. Lala, rising into the cosmos, says, I can see time. Back in the corporeal world, the Elmuth explodes in tremendous fashion, much to Char's horror. In a rage, he takes another swing at the Gundam, but Amro has the reflexes to counterattack, and he slices off one of the Gelgoog's arms. Amro too, is horrified at his actions, and moans that he's done something he can never undo. He cries, tears streaming down his face. Shah recognizes that he is in no condition to continue the battle and withdraws as his mobile suit has been badly damaged. He asks Lala's spirit to guide him, and we see a tear leak out from under his mask. The human drama is only one facet of the bigger battle. Fierce fighting continues to rage around the Zeon stronghold. Selah, in her reinforced gym, is fighting hard and destroying enemy units. However, she gets caught in the explosion of one of the mobile armors she destroys and she's forced to eject into the core fighter. Somehow, perhaps through new type intuition, she spots Shars Gelgoog flying through space and follows him as he heads back into the fortress. Okay, so I already kind of talked about how the uh, anime handled this sequence, uh, but did you have any particular thoughts or moments that stood out to you here
0: um looking at that entire sequence play out again i guess the one thing that does occur to me well i okay i wanted to go back to what we were talking about earlier and how i thought uh in that previous section where char was kissing uh mm-hmm. Layla. and i had initially said that i don't know if i believe. That he really does care about her beyond what she can do for him, but yeah. then I remember this scene where, you know, he he clearly expresses some emotion for her. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that, it's like the most emotion me... we ever see from him, maybe.
2: Exactly. Like, I, I don't right. think
1: we've ever seen him cry.
0: I mean, it it always feels like his uh, emotional range is. Um, you know somewhere strictly between smug and angry Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) yeah so um, back on that it did I did feel like I had to take that back a little bit because I still think that he who I guess is pretty selfish in that sense but you know, clearly, to whatever uh, level he was able to feel for her, um, he did feel for her, and, and I don't know if he... Yeah, again, I don't know if this is another thing where he maybe tells himself what he needs to tell himself in order to believe, uh, you know, whatever he needs to believe to to continue to function. Uh, maybe he doesn't admit it. I... Like I don't know how emotionally self aware is is what I guess what I'm trying to say, but
2: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah, like the way that that scene was described where the singular teardrop uh again th- this being the most emotion that he's shown for another human being, and this is a guy who you know whose parents were murdered and they were driven from their homeland yeah. so that's yeah, I, I guess it's fair to say that whatever his motivations may be, uh, his his care and love for Lala, uh, I guess it crept up on him. I, like, I don't really have any other words for it. Uh, it. It might be fair to say that she might be the one person that he cares about.
1: Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. I, I do think that yeah. his feelings for her... Are genuine yeah it's uh yeah i mean it, it's just as genuine as amro's reaction you know on the preceding page it's just that there's just the two of them are such uh different people that amro is going to have this totally uh unrestrained emotional reaction where he screams and laments that he's done something that he can never undo and he just can only sit in the cockpit and, and and weep whereas Shar he he just flies away with his you know his tail tucked between his legs and he doesn't necessarily weep but there's clearly some emotion there with the tear and exactly he's he's asking lala's spirit to guide him like it it really doesn't feel like he's ever asked anybody for anything
0: that's the most sentimental we've ever seen him yeah you know like, again, this this idea that he's just watched her die and for him to reach out to the idea of her, that's, I, I don't want to say romantic, but, you know, well, not, not romantic in the, uh, the lovey-dovey. It's, it's like romantic sense, it, you know? with it's a capital R. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. So that's that's probably like we said that that's probably the realist version like the purest i guess emotional response that he's had mm-hmm. uh to to another human being at this point uh so yeah it's 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 just a reminder of just how complex char is you know like i guess whenever for all of the moments that we see in him where there are things about him that are uh frustrating and uh you know uh maddening um like for them to throw this loop in there and to you know pull back the curtain and show us that there is there are these layers to him, that's, uh, that's, you know, well done. Yes.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to go back to the scene that you're describing that, that early scene where, you know, after Amaro uh, accidentally kills Lala and, you know, there's this, uh, strange, not strange, but this, this sort of metaphysical, these yeah. couple of pages of just metaphysical uh uh scenes where i guess he i guess Amro has an existential crisis where maybe you can call it shell shock or post-traumatic stress disorder or something but the way that it's portrayed it's it's again another like elegantly portrayed scene that uh, uh highlights in these moments of just chaos and catastrophe that these are real people uh you know at the core of it all who still have to struggle with the consequences of their actions it's mm-hmm. it's something that reminds me of Neon Genesis Evangelion in the sense that there are quite a few episodes where you know these kids are doing a job that they're doing a job where the the entirety of human existence, existence rests upon their shoulder and to 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 think that they would not be that they would not be just a little batty from that sort of pressure yeah is unthinkable and and i think that applies here to amaro as well like we forget that these are all teenagers and kids that are fighting in a life or death war uh you know the the stakes are just that high and it's it's if they fail then you know the existence of everyone that they know uh everyone on their home world is at stake and you know I at 16 I was barely functional enough to you know <laughs> talk to a woman let alone consider the ramifications of taking a life yeah and, yeah <laughs>
1: yeah. man I, yeah but i don't know if i'm barely functional by those standards at my age now <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>.
2: <laughs> yeah
1: did you have any other thoughts on uh anything that Amro and lala said during the scene uh in color at the beginning of the
2: chapter
0: i guess the one section that jumps out at me and it's a pretty hopeful section is it's the moment where Lala is talking about how she's again it's this sort of existential conversation but she talks about how she's a time traveler and she can see the future and you know just from this exchange we can see that people have the capacity to change and that we will change. People will change you know it's just that in the moment this is just what we are and You know, I don't know if I'm on. If I'm, I'm absolutely certain that that is like what Lala is actually saying to him in moments, um, in the moments of her death, or whether that's just something Amaro is projecting on the situation, or if that's just what he needs to hear in order to cope with everything that's going on. But it's, it's a hopeful message at the at, it's a hopeful message at the that the core of this conflict right and yeah it's very optimistic it gets to, exactly and it's something that gets to it, it i i cannot reiterate this enough but i'm not like a historian i'm not someone who knows too much about japanese history beyond like you know just uh a couple of random things here and there, and uh, maybe some observational uh, hypotheses. But you know, in in the post World War II era, it I, I can believe that in in the face of the devastation that they faced, and you know, coming out of that that era, uh, I can believe that the people who survived the war were just so. Affected by it, that this was the thing that they needed to hear in order to, you know, persevere, uh, in order yeah, to the belief to that live people after will that, change. Exactly. 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 Right. Like, I think it's fair to say that, well, I think World War II certainly was a war that impacted so many people from all, so many walks of life. But the situation in Japan was it's 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 one where, in the aftermath of it, they, as a society, really had to take a long look at themselves and the things that they had done in the name of country and uh and it's in that self analysis that people come to conclusions about their motivations when it comes to war and how do you prevent these sorts of things from ever happening again and to some degree I have a feeling like this sort of a message in, in, in Gundam especially is one where again it's something that they need to hear in order to remind themselves that you know it was all for something that there's a redemption to it, that we are not confined to to live in this endless cycle of just death and devastation, that, you know, in spite of it all, they can come through and persevere on the other side of it as better, more enlightened beings. And, you know, it's debatable whether that is a reality or not. I think we're still clearly... You know, working those things out, but we're far
1: from that,
0: we're far from that, but it's nice to believe <laughs> yeah it's think, it's a good aspirational ideal exactly it's exactly it's a I would prefer that we as a society aspire to those goals than not,
2: yeah, yeah, definitely, section seven Albert. Let's Let's go. Deep in the heart
1: of a Bawaku, in an opulent and lavish hall with European style architecture, Giranzabi takes a moment for himself to admire his weapons collection. The hall is lined with various suits of medieval armor and weapons from throughout history and various cultures. He settles on a suit of samurai armor and unsheathes a katana. Soon, his fascist reverie is interrupted by an aide. The Red Comet has come to see him. Girin disparages Char and the special New Type unit for failing Cassilia. Girin tells Char that Cassilia isn't the only one with an intelligence network and that he, too, knows who Shar really is. Girin rambles on about how the Principality of Zeon is on the cusp of the Third Epoch and that he would <laughs> never let Char take revenge on House Zabi. Shar allows Girin to finish posturing, then flashes his trademark smirk and humbly begs him for the use of the Zeong, the new Zeon mobile armor that Shar believes will help him defeat Amuro and the Gundam. Girin permits him to take it with the understanding that this is Shar's chance to prove to him that he's got no du- duplicity or political ambitions. Char heads to a hangar, and we, see, we get a view of the Zeong, a massive mecha that looks like a giant mobile suit with no legs. And as the mechanic says, the legs are just for show. Back in space, Watkine and the ships under his command have detected the Dolos, Cassilia's flagship, approaching Abawaku. He commands his ships to turn around to intercept her. The Federation can't afford to let her interfere with their mobile suit landing operation. Cassilia sees this and begins firing volleys. The Dolos' long-range heavy firepower begins laying waste to Watkine's ships. Kai and Hayato and their gun cannons have touched down on the surface of a Bawaku along with other Federation mobile suits. Kai sees the explosions of Watkine's ships and grimly realizes that White Base is in danger and he and Hayato might not even have a ship to go back to. Meanwhile, Sela has landed her core fighter in the Space Fortress. Armed with only her wits and a pistol, she heads deeper into the fortress on foot. It's chaos inside. She avoids Xeon men as much as she can as she works her way deeper, but eventually, she's spotted by enemy soldiers. Girin strides into the command center and his underlings report updates on the battle. He is extremely confident that Xeon is about to win. White Base receives an urgent transmission from Watkine. He tells Bright that he can't hold off the Dolos and that it'll be coming for them next. Before he can finish giving his final orders, he's killed as his ship is destroyed. Bright knows that he can't allow the Federation's landing forces to be cut off. After briefly suppressing the shock of their new predicament, Bright stands up from his command chair and tells Mirai, to fly straight into a Babaku. Another great bright moment to end off this chapter. Love to see it. It's like giving Bright his props, you know. He's not just some middle management dude. He's a Yeah. He's a leader, man.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh I feel like it's a long time coming because so much of the earlier sections. I mean, we see flashes of of this leadership in him, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much undermining by the higher-ups and his superiors that he doesn't really get the credit and the glory for what he does do. At least not, not by those people, you know? Yeah. And and it's in these moments where the stakes are so high and where the the fate of everyone just lies on the balance that's it's just those moments that just remind us that there's a reason that he went from lieutenant junior grade to to where he is now you know to 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 yeah like i i forget what his exact title is but it almost seems feels mute moot because uh in in spite of whatever you know superficial title they give him he's clearly he's clearly earned it like dozens of times over at this point you know
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: it's almost this idea of yeah he, he fights in service of these generals and leaders that are above him but if they're also incompetent then it almost doesn't matter because What what, what matters at the end of the day is results.
1: Yep, exactly, exactly. I I really do like that sequence at the end of the chapter. uh, When you look at page 233 and uh, just those scenes where he's kind of processing it, the middle panel where he's sitting in his chair, he looks kind of worried and he's thinking about the situation and you have Mirai and then the other bridge crew in the background kind of looking towards him. Waiting for something, and then he's processing it, and then the next page, the way that Yaz draws him standing up, that's that's a pretty heroic drawing, man. It's it's impressive. Just the it's noble. Yeah, it's super noble. It's it's really good composition there. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah. yeah, it it shows a it shows a transformation. Like when you look at the previous page, he's he he just looks like a regular guy. Uh, processing a bunch of information and then on the next page (laughs) he he suddenly transforms into a hero
0: (laughs) 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 that's a good way of describing it it's uh it's really well captured in the sequential storytelling within the panels right Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. the, the the movement of his body language to you know to this final iteration of himself where he's just standing fully upright you know barrel chested
2: yeah uh, you know
0: prepared to prepared to take on everything that he needs to take on yeah yeah i love that it's great i also
1: thought it was uh funny in the beginning of the chapter when Girin is looking at his armor collection and he pulls out the (laughs) the samurai sword
0: (laughs) yeah yeah
1: was the first yeah. thing that you thought when you saw that scene? Man, gear and Zabi is a weeb.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's a European who just loves samurai armor. <laughs> yeah. It's it's so funny because uh, on the
1: previous page, when you look at the armor hall, he's got all this medieval knight stuff and what looks like a Roman centurion uh, gear. And then he has the samurai armor. He's just got a, a collection of things from every era. Just a smorgasbord of old armor and weapons.
0: Yeah. You know, just to go back to that section, there's, you know, that revelation there that Girin is also aware of, you know, Shar's entire background. That was kind of an interesting revelation too. I don't know if that was, I guess at the end of it all, I don't know if it was entirely all too surprising. It just, I guess it just is a reminder that as we race towards the end all all of these uh all of these facades are just slipping away as uh you know as everything begins to play out for you know the finality of it all and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's you know it, it's believable that they would all be so devious and secretive with one another that. Again, they're just constantly withholding information to use various characters as resources against other people um, as long as it suits their needs, right? Yeah. And, And it's just this idea that there are apparently all sorts of things that they're willing to overlook and ignore as long as it means that they can get what they need from uh, the situation.
1: Yeah, but, even to some extent, Shard does the same thing here. I mean, he's he he just lets Garen say all this stuff about the renewal of man and <laughs> the third epoch and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. That's a funny line. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> when he said third epoch, there was a part of me that, Thought of the Fourth Reich as well.
1: <laughs> the Third Reich,
0: yeah. The Third Reich, yeah. There was something about that that was like, sounds a little too familiar. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But but Shard just yeah. lets him ramble, and and then uh, at the end of it, he just basically says similar stuff to what he told Casilia in the earlier chapter, where he says yeah. that he's he's just... uh, Well, in this case, he just says that he's kind of at the end of his uh capabilities and he just really needs to uh use this new weapon in order to beat the Gundam and <laughs> that's what Char really cares about right now is just beating yeah. Amuro
0: he essentially he essentially says so are you gonna let me kill him or what yeah exactly <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> exactly yeah. It,
0: it,
1: it's also interesting because it it feels like uh Char is is like to humble himself before Giren like this guy is definitely the guy that he's got to kill you know out of all of the zombies like it's hard to imagine yeah. like anyone being a lesser you know, being a higher priority than Giren out of all the zombies and he's got him like
0: if there was a face that you were going to associate mm-hmm. with with the people that you were going to kill exactly or that was responsible for all this that guy was the face
1: exactly and Char just stands there and takes it meekly, almost, and and then at the end he just, you know, asks him for a favor. Basically, <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. it it's, it it kind of feels like another example of Char's ability to disassociate himself from a lot of emotions, and just yeah, yeah. you know, he's he what he really wants right now is to beat the Gundam. And the only way he thinks he can do that is by having access to this newly developed weapon that only Giranzabi has command over. So if if debasing himself before his enemy is the only way to get that weapon, he's willing to, you know, smile through it.
2: <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, he, just look at his face he, on
1: page one ninety-nine, that first panel where he's smiling like that. And then uh, after after Garen agrees and he walks away and Char salutes on page 201, he's still smiling in that last panel. And it's just one of those typical Char grins where he's... Oh, man, it, it's just emblematic of who he is as a person.
0: Yeah. He's all of us when we know that we have to deal with a boss that we don't like. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Any other thoughts on this chapter?
0: No. it's. Uh, I think we covered it sufficiently
1: okay here we are at section eight a group of zeon soldiers have captured Sela and are escorting her through some hallways they take her to an interrogation chamber and after some macho posturing and intimidation they remove her helmet and are about to rough her up a bit but Sela boldly tells them that she did not sneak into a babaku rather she has returned to zeon she tells them that her name is Artesia Somdekun and commands them to tell the supreme commander. Shocked at this news, the Xeon officer in charge heads out to tell someone in command. Back in the space battle, Bright commands all of the remaining attack force to stage an assault landing on a Bawaku. They'll fly full speed ahead into danger. Black base takes some damage, but Mirai is determined to make it, and they manage to crash land onto the fortress. In the middle of fighting enemy mobile suits, Kai is shocked to see Bright make such a reckless move, but he's also surprisingly sentimental to see that the ship and his comrades are still alive. Kai tells Hayato that they need to protect White Base, that it's not just a ship. It's been their home ever since they left Side 7. Amuro, too, regroups with them in his Gundam. Cassilia has arrived at Abawaku as well. And strides her way into the command center with a contingent of men. She confronts her brother and loudly questions him in front of all the soldiers and officers about his use of the solar ray and their father's location when he fired it. She uses his admission of patricide to unexpectedly execute him on the spot by firing her gun at his head at short range. Ghiranzabi's corpse floats in the low gravity, leaving a trail of blood as everyone is shocked, Casilia is now in command,
0: yeah, man that uh the ending of that chapter was pretty surprising, like I think we always knew that Casilia and urine they were on a path they were on a path of collision between the two of them, you know, and yeah I don't truth be told Cascilia to be the one to win out on that you you uh, didn't think. I I really didn't uh it, I I think just the mood and the tone of the book always set it up to feel like Girin would be the final big bad. Uh-huh. So when that happened, that took me by surprise a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But,
0: but it's those surprises that are a book like this, right? I mean, I guess at the end of the day it doesn't matter because they were both equally as repulsive and evil. So, yeah. You know, whether he died and he lived, or he lives and uh, or he dies and she lives, it it really doesn't make too much of a difference because they're again they're both equally as reprehensible.
1: Yeah, yeah. Swap out one fascist for the other fascist probably exactly. wouldn't make too much of a difference.
0: Exactly. I mean, I guess it's still pretty satisfying to see him get shot in the head, though. <laughs> you enjoyed that, <laughs> yeah, man.
2: Why shouldn't I? <laughs> the f-
1: The funny thing is just the way that his body just floats around in the low gravity. <laughs> He's yeah, just making yeah. a mess inside the command center.
2: He's
0: just ping ponging around the the halls of the office, yeah uh, yeah of the command center. <laughs> uh, it's uh it's pretty undignified. It so. is
1: man, it is, it really is. Yeah.
0: And then there's the entire scene where Sela reveals herself to them. And that's a pretty uncomfortable scene, to be honest, because they're they're not saying it, but there's there's a lot of violence in there, you know? And up to this point, something that I think we think about too much, but feel like these soldiers at this point are just at their after having spent years <laughs> just doing terrible things to people so they this is essentially them at the worst possible place that they can be so yeah you know that's not an excuse it's purely an observation but um yeah and it's pretty Pretty heavy when she basically calls rank on them, and it just feels like it's another inch that they throw in there. Although it's something that works to the favor of uh, you know Whiteface and Amuro and the Federation because they essentially have now works for the Zeon at at the at the station, and they have their own miniature. Uh, uprising that's working in their favor so but
1: it was totally unplanned.
0: It was totally unplanned, and it just feels like it' it just feels like it's another that things are just unraveling fast, and you know i I think that when things get chaotic, they always go chaotic for the worst but apparently every once in a while the chaos works in your favor,
1: yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I believe this is all. This scene with Selah is also something that was not in the anime. I'm pretty sure it was not in the anime. I don't think she revealed herself, revealed her identity, and led an uprising with uh, Daikun loyalists in the anime. So it, it's pretty interesting to see Yaz decide to go this route in this version of the story. I like it, yeah, I like it. It definitely gives her more agency in the story,
0: yeah, yeah. It's something that also reminds me of a lot of those historical epics where mm-hmm. so much of those stories resol- revolve around the fact that you know um you have a bunch of these warlords and they just kind of use the the emperor as this standard bearer you know Um, yeah because during that i I forget which era or what the name of the era is but um there was this period of time in japan where all the different warlords were going you know just going at it with each other and one of the ways that they would legitimize themselves was by kidnapping the emperor literally like literally a breathing you know, for Capture the Flag or something like that, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: So it's this weird idea of, like, in this instance of her revealing herself as part of the royal family and just rallying these people to her. um, Yeah, it was something that sort of harkened back to that, of just how legitimacy of the crown like how much that calcul uh, how much that enters the calculus for like i guess legitimacy mhm yeah
1: yeah it definitely has that feel like you said of the historical epics like this is getting pretty uh intriguing here bringing up her yeah. her lineage yeah. and it, it's the kind of thing that makes you uh wonder, like, exactly how many of the soldiers here would actually be loyal to the guy who founded, like, the the guy that their country is named after, you know? Like...
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's, yeah, it, it's, uh, and the way that it unfolds in the next couple chapters, that it, it's actually, I think it's pretty satisfying, and I do like her reveal here. Um
0: It's pretty inspiring, really, too.
1: It is, man. It's inspiring. Like, she's, like you, you think that she's she's on the ropes, what's she gonna do? She she's uh handcuffed and locked in a room with all these enemy soldiers. They're yeah threatening her. And uh like you said, there's some uncomfortable uh uh Remarks Exactly <laughs> <Threats>.
0: <laughs> Uncomfortable remarks and threats being made. Let's let's say that.
1: Yeah, against a, a woman. Yeah. And She's extremely calm and collected during th- this entire process. And when the this macho guy is yelling his voice and acting real big in front of her, about to slap her, she just says, I did not sneak in here. I have come back. And she says it with so much confidence that we get this reaction shot of the dude on page 246 where he's completely taken aback. and And then she just... Mm. Reveals her identity, but she's so the way that Yaz draws her is just such a confident posture you know for somebody who's just been accosted and arrested she she truly looks like she has she's no fear
0: in a position of yeah like you would assume that she's in a position of weakness at this moment, but you know her confidence and gravitas like they propel her front where yeah, like these weaker willed soldiers crumble to it, and <laughs> yeah exactly, like you know, rally to her side that people
2: Americans who don't really
0: have a background for you know imperial leadership, that might be a foreign concept, but
2: might even be hard to believe you know if, if you if you view it
0: through the lens of uh, a historical context it's i i think it's believable i think it's yeah it works and and the, again the way that she plays it off you're right it's it's totally satisfying because it just puts you reminds you that Is a player in this game just as much right and this is essentially the moment where she reclaims the crown and therefore reclaims the empire the the moment that has been so long in the waiting for this family yeah you know we've been maybe we've been wired to expect our pull it off maybe maybe not necessarily by becoming Emperor, but you know, in the seeds of destruction that he's sowing, they'll they'll get their revenge. But but by doing it this way, it leg- legitimizes uh, and you know and puts them in a position to reclaim their throne.
2: mm mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and, and
1: I, I I do think that with How uh, the origin manga overall plays out with the volumes uh, earlier that were devoted to Shar and Sela's backstory. uh, Clearly, there's a a lot of thought put into uh, what Yaz was going to do with Sela because. The um, the amount of time that he devoted to her in the flashback story arcs was a pretty significant chunk. And uh, from what I remember in the show, she, I mean, she gets a couple episodes dedicated to her. But I didn't really feel like she was a big player, you know, not not in the same level that she is here in, in the book. And in in the show, I think there was a lot of time, you know, I mean, it, you got to be kind of forgiving of it because it was from a different era, like the yeah, late yeah. 70s and early 80s. So, like, female characters didn't necessarily have a whole ton to do in terms of, you know, spotlight moments or just moments where they can be really heroic and, and shine. Or, you know, just those
2: archetype
0: that they mm-hmm. were expecting her to fill a role that they would expect her to fill. And, you know, that's just what they were accustomed to. Um, and I do think that this version of it uh, addresses that. You know? Yeah. It, it's like you said, it gives her more agency beyond just being, you know, a, a wilting lily uh, or a damsel in dr- distress or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, one of the episodes I remember from the TV series was this one episode where uh, White Base was on Earth. This was not adapted into the manga, uh, but White Base was on Earth, and uh, during uh, their travels, Selah was trying to find information about Char. So there's uh, an episode where she basically hijacks the Gundam to go off on her own adventure, and then, like... (laughs) She's pretty bad at it. <laughs> yeah. Not <Dang. laughs> not cartoonishly or buffoonishly bad in an insulting or demeaning way, but it it definitely felt like that was an episode where she was a fish out of water, like kind of in a, above her head, just trying to pilot the Gundam. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and here, you know, we've got a lot of scenes throughout the whole series where she's extremely competent at what she does. Uh, she's... Exactly. Yeah, she's just... Cool and collected. Um, and then the other thing I, I like about this is the contrast with Shar as well. Because there's, there's that, I guess, that aspect that we've discussed in the past where Shar is not merely a foil for Amro, but uh, he and Sela are foils for each other as well. Just the way that everything and their backstories played out uh very you know the way that they grew up up to a certain point in as kids, you know, they experienced pretty much the same things together and Char turned into this hardened sociopath who yeah. just you know he's just obsessed with revenge and Sela s- surprisingly turned out very well adjusted and, and normal but she has these moments where where in a way it's like you can kind of see the Char in her too, you know? Like this moment oh, yeah, when she reveals absolutely. herself. Like that's that's a lot of charisma being exuded. And and somehow uh like all the stuff that Char had been saying in to Amro, uh starting in the previous volume and even earlier in in the when he alluded to it in their fight in space, how Char was you know trying to start the uh or trying to lead the renewal of man or whatever movement his ideology uh whatever he was going to call it uh it's like he he he's saying all these big things about being a leader and and all this but here Selah, she only has to say her name and then all these people are cowed before her and
2: mm-hmm.
1: so I, I find that pretty fascinating too it's like she's not even really trying to to lead any kind of movements, but just by being herself, it kind of,
2: it activates of. movement. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But it it's it's organic. in this story. Exactly. And up to this point, it's like Shar doesn't really make any steps to share his ideology with, with anybody as far as we know, other than Amaro. And yeah. that's you know that's it's not too likely that he's gonna recruit too many followers by preaching his stuff to the enemy
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i still think he's more an agent of chaos than Mm -hmm. you know this force. because it's fair i think it's fair to say that his objective isn't to reinstate family or to bring peace to 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 bring a peaceful resolution to this conflict I'm pretty sure his goal here throughout the series has just been to satisfy his thirst for vengeance.
2: yeah, and, I agree you know
0: and even when he's decided that he's finally found this new objective, which is you know the elevation of the new age uh, of this new kind of man it it's still in service to the ultimate goal of wiping out mankind as it is so yeah. it just it, they just happen to they're, they're two goals that just happen to work in each other's favors you know mhm mhm so it's it's like you said it, it's highly unlikely he's ever going to be in a position where he's going to take it upon himself to lead and organize, uh, the remaining people it, into any kind of productive, uh, uh, any kind of productive, uh, direction.
1: Yeah, certainly in this story, we don't see anything that really indicates that he's pretty single-minded in his quest for revenge.
2: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: One of the other moments I really enjoyed in this section was uh, on pages 254-55 when when White Base crashes on on the fortress and you get this sequence where Hayato and Kai are fighting off enemy mobile suits and they, they see White Base land and they're just taken by surprise. like They're relieved that the base and the people are... Still alive. And and then uh hmm. Kai decides that hey, even though we've got a mission to uh destroy this fortress, I think our new mission is really just to protect our ship.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a moment that reminds you like I think we talked about this a little bit. I wanna say in in one of the previous episodes, it might have been something else that no, we were talking about it in scalp. The idea that the setting a role as a character right Mm -hmm. and this is a moment that reminds you it it sort of pulls on your heartstrings a little bit to remind you that hey this thing is coming to an end and white base is is that focal point that we can look to as a identifiable uh symbol for you know Mhm. coming to an end, right? So this idea that story conclusion the we we all have this impending sense that anything can happen to anyone uh as you know anything can happen to anyone. So this sense that right base the next on the chopping block. It would really put a final period on the story if it if it finally went down, you know? Yeah. yeah almost this harsh moment of reality and realization that oh this really is kind of coming to an end
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. It, it does take quite a bit of damage but the whole that scene is is kind of funny too because it it looks it looks like uh Hayato is fighting for his life like there's an enemy mobile suit a goof on top of him on top of his gun cannon about to chop him with a with an axe and then Kai just looks in the other direction and he's like what the hell is that it's White Base and then he just kind of casually shoots the dude on top of on top of Hayato without even really looking at it <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny
0: yeah yeah
1: and then that's that scene too uh, on page 255 where Kai's looking at White Base and he says i mean that ship she she's been our home ever since side 7 and then he looks up and sees the Gundam and he says, see, our buddy's back too. And then when you flip the page, that first panel is Kai looking up at the Gundam saying, maybe he's found the place where he belongs too.
2: Yeah, That's a pretty yeah.
1: poignant scene, like very, very... Uh, it's sentimental, man. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. some good stuff right there. Really Just to is. devote a little bit of that to... Uh, in a battle scene, devote a little bit of attention to the emotional aspects.
2: Yeah.
0: It's a good wink and a nod to to the readers. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Anything else? Um, you want to move on to section 9?
1: Let's move on to section 9. Girin's bloody corpse is still bouncing around the room. Cassilia asks Girin's soldiers... If any of them object to what she's done, unsurprisingly, as they're all being held at gunpoint by her and her men, no one objects. She officially takes command outside of the command center. The lieutenant who has just been told that Artesia is in the fortress rushes off to the interrogation room to see for himself. It's getting chaotic inside Babaku as we see Jim's have finally made it inside the base and get into close quarters combat with a bunch of zakus when the zeon lieutenant finally lays eyes on artesia recognition slowly dawns on his face and he salutes her he identifies himself as lieutenant donovan matgloss one of rambaral's men from the old days and commands the soldiers to remove selah's restraints matgloss is so overjoyed at this revelation that tears pour out of his eyes Outside in the hallways, numerous Xeon foot soldiers are on the move. They've got word that marines from Cassilia's ship are streaming out. They've got a coup d'etat on their hands. Despite the chaos, Matt Gloss tries to gather as many soldiers as possible to hear the news of Artesia. Sela walks into the hallway, surrounded by dozens upon dozens of Zion soldiers on both sides. As they recognize her as Artesia's Somme Dekun, they renounce the Zabi's, and start chanting, Sieg Xion, right there in the hallway. Sela, for her part, appears uneasy and wishes her brother Casval were right there with her. Speaking of Char, he's getting acclimated to the Zeon. While he's in the cockpit, he learns the news that Giren, that Cassilia has killed Giren and taken command. Reinvigorated by this information, he finally launches in search of White Base and the Gundam. As he heads out, he makes short work of any Federation mobile suits that are unfortunate enough to cross his path. Bright and the rest of the gang are gathering their bearings when they overhear a Xeon transmission that Giranzabi is dead. It's not really enough information to affect what they're doing. Amro is sitting down while the Gundam is getting resupplied inside White Base. Mirai goes down to check on him, but sees Fraubo nearby and tells her that Amro wants to talk to her. The two of them have a heart-to-heart moment, and Frau's mind is put at ease because she thought Amro was still mad at her. Just as the two embrace, they're alerted to the new mobile suit heading their way. Char is coming for them. Mm -hmm. So, we get your uh, scene of Giran bouncing around the room like a ping-pong ball.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) It's a heck of a way to start the chapter, but, you know, like I, like I said previously, it's satisfying. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. It, it's, I do think it's funny how, uh, like, we have this whole gruesome scene, and then Casselia says, does anyone have any objections? And then, like, everybody's pointing their guns at those soldiers, and they're like, nope, no objections.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, just I, a reminder. I, have, I have
1: no idea what I would do if I were one of those guys, man. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. But it's just a reminder that, you know, when put under the gun, uh, you really never know who's who's truly a believer and who isn't, you know? Yeah,
1: that is true, man. That is true. Ugh. They're only as loyal to Ghir and Zabi as long as they're not directly being threatened with death.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, this chapter takes place right after that scene where I and uh, Hayato are last left guarding White Base and to see Char ready to blast his way there. That's a heck of a way to end this chapter or this section, man. Like it's Mm -hmm. it's high drama, you know, like it is this news uh, again another new piece of technology be spitting them out at this point um just at this accelerated rate and right after he lost his last uh zaku unit he's just got this new experimental one good to go and it's another like pretty bizarre uh sort of concept where i think the arms uh separate on wires, and they basically have laser fingers that fly around or something
1: yep you yep. <laughs> yeah
2: yeah it's
0: it's a pretty out there design, but it's you know it's it's
1: uh it's memorable that's for sure
0: yeah it's super memorable it makes me think of like Eric Larson villains where you know he's just taking the craziest idea and throwing it against the wall just because it'd be fun to see that it's like
1: it's like let's uh see how funny it would be to create this really hulking scary looking mobile suit but not give him any legs
0: yeah yeah he just hovers around on a on a a on bunch a of thrusters yeah thrusters there we go on, on jet thrusters and again, his hands shoot out from his arms, and they just fly all over the place, and they just blast lasers wherever they're flaying flailing, yeah, it's, uh, it's crazy, man. It's pretty crazy,
1: yeah, even just in the few scenes we of the Xiang in action in this chapter, he's just wrecking the federation mobile suits that get in his way,
0: yeah that's pretty, pretty crazy, just just that one char is this incredibly talented zaku pilot and two for him to have this new unit that's just so overpowered it's yeah (laughs) uh, it's a massive threat to them but yeah it's a great scene when uh you know that last moment where amuro and was that frau yeah you know they're having this Again, it's another moment where these two characters who who've gone through a lot together and we don't really know where they stand but we finally get to put a period on 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 that like relationship here and you know the they get to have a moment together that reconciles their their friction, right? And yeah. It's a, it's a nice little moment that the two of them have. And then to have it come to an end with this foreboding, Star is coming.
2: Yeah, that's a
1: good cliffhanger.
0: Dramatic cliffhanger. You
1: know? Yeah, that that's way better than somebody getting thrown out of a window or something.
0: <laughs> it's better than where Batman... Dead, and for old, for us to find out in the next issue that he survived by jumping into a suit of armor, a split yeah. second before the explosion went off.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's a, <laughs> that's
0: a real cliffhanger. <laughs> this is a real cliffhanger. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's really well done. That whole little sequence, the just the the care between the characters, where Mirai. Well, I mean, first. Bright is the one who who wanted to go check on Amro, but then they just got this big news, so he had to stay on the bridge. So Mirai volunteers to to check on Amro, and then she sees Fraubo nearby and and tells Frau to to talk to him. Uh, and I had kind of forgotten that in the previous volume, they that she and Amro had gotten into that argument.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, yeah, like. Seeing this reminded me of that, um, and for them to have that moment where they can, you know, just confirm that there's no no ill no feelings or blood. anything. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's it's a great moment and a great way to uh, end it with the coming of Shar. Really, uh, right. yeah. It's it's.
0: It really it, does feel like if this is the their final day on Earth and they don't know whether they're going to live in or die, any of them then they should go out one another because they've been through so much together, right? Mm
2: -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: It's it's the way that it should be is that it's like you mentioned earlier. um, You know, Amaro might not have a family, but this is his found family.
2: Exactly.
1: White base is his family. Exactly,
0: exactly. And this is how – this is the way it should end where – we Again, we don't know who's going to live or die when this is all over, but we want to be able to have peace with one another uh, before we face that possibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Then also the, the scene... Oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead.
0: No, no, no. Go ahead. Please.
1: I have a feeling we were about to bring up the same thing, but I was going to bring up the... Uh, that big scene in the middle of the chapter when Sela is escorted yeah. outside of the room. And then, uh, the Lieutenant who was, uh, who served under Rambaral, he, he tells everybody that he can, that Artesia is back. And then all these soldiers see her and they start chanting Zieg Zion. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's a weird thing to say that this, uh, fascistic chant still feels like a, a win <laughs> Like, yeah, it feels yeah. kind of dirty to even imagine it, but it, it still hey, feels like it does it feel like a good moment.
2: Them?
0: Yeah, if that's yeah. what it takes to rally them. Then <laughs> <laughs> I can ignore certain things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's also a good moment for Rambaral, too, because we, we, when we mentioned him in the earlier episodes, we did talk about how there was something noticeably different about him compared to the rest of the Xeon Empire. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this... Even though he died much, much earlier on in the series, this is kind of the moment that...
1: We're we're seeing his uh, influence, the impact that he left on the soldiers under his command.
0: Exactly, exactly. And even though he's no longer around... It's just a reminder that his inherent goodness was still so impactful
1: yeah it's it's like you were saying because earlier, man, very good yeah. people on both sides
0: <laughs> <laughs> There are very good people
2: on many sides <laughs> moment just that goodness is so
0: inherent and impactful that it resonates outward into the future uh, into this very moment this pivotal moment of the story and it i mean i well i mean helps them rally their forces further you know helps them
1: rally their forces yeah
0: yeah so i thought it was a nice send off to rumba raw or a nice nod to rumba raw
1: yeah yeah definitely i like how uh yaz took the opportunity to Draw Barral one more time when Selah was thinking about him. Yeah. Over on uh, what what is that page? 282. <laughs> you get a young Rambharaul in th- in the background there. That scene where she finally walks out of the room into the hall. That's a pretty incredibly well staged scene. Uh, to page 285 to 286. Like the the way she. Just walks out of the, walks through the doorway, and then you see the reactions of the faces of all these soldiers, and then uh, two thirds of the page is her standing there. But the way that, the way that the lighting is, it's it's almost like she's, I don't know, like like Joan of Arc or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: (laughs) Right.
1: Like, yeah, like she she just kind of. Lit in this way, where you don't see the people, the details of the people directly behind her or anything, because she's just compared to them, she's just so vibrant or something. It, it's yeah. it's a really interesting uh, way of depicting this moment of the story. I, I like it a yeah. lot. It it adds so much to the mood.
0: Yeah, and you know, just the people that you do see is that they are just in awe of her. Yeah, it just solidifies the sense that he's just natural born leader.
2: And mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it, it goes back to that idea that in uh I guess perception of Sela in, in the series was maybe not quite one where she's as driven or take charge as this version is, but this this version of her is really just something else, uh something inspiring, you know? And I it's it's the perfect note to To close their story arc out on, because again, we still have one more volume of this book, so I don't know what's gonna happen, but mm-hmm. that there's going to have to be some someone left to rebuild when this is all over, like this was the perfect way to seed that resolution, you know it it was the culmination of all of that uh. Story that they had been planting seeds for, well into the
2: beginning. So, yeah. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Chapter ten. Let's do it.
1: Amuro swiftly gets back into the Gundam. The zeong is leaving a trail of carnage and decimated gems in its wake. Finally, Shar finds White Base and opens fire, destroying the hatch to the port deck. Amuro has to shoot his way out. In his cockpit, Shar smiles at the sight of the Gundam emerging from the smoke, aiming a bazooka at him. Shar is ready to end this here and now. Zeon's hands are detachable and connected to cables, giving them unbelievable agility and mobility. As each fingertip is also a laser gun, it's a crazy duel. Inside the Zeon command center. Cassilia feels some tremors, and one of her officers tells her that there's been a mutiny. We see that there's a significant number of Dakun loyalists who have assembled under Artesia's name and are hell bent on going after Cassilia. Cassilia assumes they're Giran loyalists, so she's shocked when she's told that the mutineers are being led by someone claiming to be Artesia Som Dakun. Shar and Amro continue their duel in space. Some Zakus and Doms try to attack the Gundam, but they just end up being speed bumps while Amuro is focusing on his real foe. He manages to get in close range with the Ziyang, and he asks Shar why he dragged Lala into this, infuriating Shar, who responds, it's beyond a child like you. After a fierce struggle, Shar manages to shoot off the Gundam's left arm, and now it's starting to look bad for Amuro. Mm. Yep. Another action-packed episode or chapter rather i really do like how yaz illustrates the all the action here i mean it's just a mecha fan's dream <laughs> i love seeing all this stuff man like the the poses and the movements of everything all the machinery the way that yeah it, the way that the battle unfolds it, Definitely there's some moments in the series where uh, I think we've mentioned that things can be chaotic, but intentionally chaotic. But I think this is one of those battles where things feel, at least to me, they feel pretty clear. Like I can pretty easily follow the direction of what's going on. I mean, even when the Ziyang is shooting his arms, like it, it still conveys everything I need to know in terms of how fast they're going and how uh Amro's having a tough time shooting them down it, and uh e- yeah even all the stuff with uh shooting up the the white base there's that scene when Amro blows down his own door just so he can get out and the Gundam walks out on page 313 that that's a pretty yeah. good looking drawing man
0: it's a really dramatic entrance for him too just you know the precursor to the final showdown between these two for him to blow that door open it's mm-hmm. it's a commanding moment
1: yeah yeah it it definitely reminds me of the iconography that we typically see in a superhero comic when you have a hero posing in front of the enemy you know it's 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 kind of like uh just epic superhero comics where A battle's about to start, and the artist always has to draw the hero and the villain in the most badass poses that they can come up with.
0: Exactly. It's the moment where they stare each other down from across the room before they like get into it.
1: Yup.
2: Yup. It's fun.
0: (laughs) It really is. It really is.
2: Yeah, there's really not in terms of plot in this
0: section other than you know just the non-stop action between them two and and i i don't mean that in a bad way either like i'm not trying to be dismissive of this it, it's just uh a huge focus of this entire section is the the culmination of like all the volumes of uh resentment between Shar and Amaro just finally coming to a to to its peak.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. They're they're going at it and it's it has that feeling of finality, I suppose, where it it's like it's like that that moment where the hero goes, one shall stand, one shall fall.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Oh actually, that's from Transformers.
0: That is very much from Transformers. I thought you <laughs> did that on purpose. <laughs>
1: I was trying to think of where I heard that before. The funny thing is, is that that happens like pretty early on in that movie too. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I was gonna it, say it, that that was Optimus Prime's and Megatron's final battle.
0: <laughs> it was. It was. And you know, I guess they both technically died in that moment. <laughs> well. In that moment, but you know, it they were both damaged enough where shortly thereafter they died.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, I
1: guess you could make the argument that Megatron got reformatted. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, it's just satisfying because this again, we've read 11 volumes up to this point, and we've seen this cat and mouse play out between Shar and Amaro there's this element of of uh, the two of them not knowing who each other are and you know trying to figure that out as well as you know the repeated battles that they have with one another there was that scene a couple of volumes ago where Shah and Amro meet face to face and it's just this really tense moment of the you know one of them knowing that oh this guy Mortal enemy, and no one knows who I am, or he doesn't know who I am. But if he finds it out, I'm as good as dead on the spot, right? Yeah. So, so eleven volumes of them playing this game with one another, and this is it. This is that the final culmination of all that. So it's it's really satisfying to see it play out in just such spectacular fashion. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, the drawing is incredible here with the just the stark contrast between the whites and the blacks here uh, mm. during their their battle in space. Like just the way like on page uh, I don't I'm not even sure what page this is because sometimes the pages don't have page numbers. But when they're fighting and the Xiong uses his hands to blast all these lasers, you just see all these streaks of white, and it, it's, mm. it's so simple but. I think it looks really good against the blackness of space,
0: yeah, just yeah. the
1: way that it's all drawn it, it it just looks exciting and totally kinetic, full of energy, yeah there's a a sense of speed and and panic in Amro as he's trying to figure out what he's fighting against exactly,
0: yeah, and the stakes are even high like. Up to this point, you wouldn't think that the stakes could be higher, but they found a way to push it even further because now uh, there's emotional stakes because we're dealing with the first meeting between the two of them after Lala's death. Mm-hmm. So they're just both emotional pain and there's nowhere to direct it except towards each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And for it all to end with uh you know uh Amaro's, uh mobile suit just getting his arm smashed. That's That's a pretty good cliffhanger right there too. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. It is. It really is. It's yeah. funny to me how uh during their duel these other xeon mobile suits try to interfere and help Char, but <laughs> they're just cannon fodder. Yeah. Yeah. They're just distractions. <laughs> that don't really accomplish much other than throwing away their own lives.
0: Yeah. It made me think of that uh, Black Adam story you were telling me about, about how in your eyes, Adam Smasher is a fool and ultimately his choice to help Black Adam leads to his downfall. And Black Adam just couldn't care less about him.
2: (laughs) I mean, I guess he,
1: I guess he looked sad. But he still moved on with his life.
2: <laughs> he's a uh, okay, okay.
1: He's a. Uh, I mean, Black Adam is an ageless. Well, not ageless, but he's an immortal magical being, right? So time uh, is a bit more transitory for him. So <laughs> so someone dying at the age of twenty-five is not much different to him meeting somebody who dies at the age of fifty. <laughs> So it, it really doesn't matter uh, who the ends up dying because this... everybody's going to die in his eyes.
0: The lifespan of Adam Smasher might as well be that of a gnat. Of a it is of a gnat. So insignificant. Like, yeah. The 25 years that you got were meaningless to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll be sad for a couple hours and then I'll get on with my life. <laughs>
0: I'm going to get me a McFlurry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that sounds pretty good right now.
0: <laughs> yeah. I haven't
1: Some had one of those in years. <laughs> uh, the the other action in that's depicted in this chapter is pretty f- fun to look at, too. The the fighting the, between the soldiers inside a Babaku when you have all these Zeon soldiers fighting other Zeon soldiers. It's uh pretty chaotic in the in these i don't know what you call them corridors and they're just shooting at each other uh and then you get to page three twenty four and then that that one soldier the that first guy who had been interrogating Selah and threatened her with you know uncomfortable remarks
0: <laughs>
1: he. <laughs> He's pledged his loyalty to her now as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: He's he's totally uh a zealot <laughs> compared to everybody else. He's like out of his mind screaming at these uh Caecilia loyalists while he's trying to waste them. There's there's something is he the dude it, it's comical. It's comical.
0: Is he the dude in this one image who's going Die
1: Granada? That is him, that's the dude I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah. and the funny to thing top. is when when you look at that top panel on page three twenty four hes his he says his name and he's lieutenant junior grade Willie macho. <laughs> that's such a funny <laughs> name dude.
0: <laughs> it's pretty funny. this guy is so over the top, but you just eat it up
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 humorous, man. he's like. Yeah. A Xeon version of Slugger Law amped up to 19 instead of 10. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I can see that. (laughs) I can imagine that. Oh, man. But nowhere near as noble or cool. (laughs)
1: Yeah, definitely not. (laughs) What did you think of the... I was going to ask you what you thought of the scene uh, on the following pages where Casilia. You know, she's she's acting all in command after killing Giren, but then once she uh, hears the news that somebody claiming to be Artasia is leading a, an insurrection on her base, or a mutiny on her base, she gets kind of taken aback. And then you get this entire splash page on page uh, 328 where she wonders, she sits down and she wonders, did I commit a blunder? Mm-hmm. Like, that's a pretty interesting scene of self-doubt in this character that's up to now she's been portrayed as like this incalculable evil character who's always got it together right like she's always got info and and knows what's going on like nothing can take her by surprise and in fact she's the one who's taken other people by surprise and now she's you know nervous
0: yeah i mean i guess that's it's the highest kind of poetic justice, right? Where the one person who thinks that they're so smart has it revealed to them that they're nowhere near as smart as they, they think they are.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's... definitely enjoyable. <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. So we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but it feels like she's known that Shar was uh... a... All, uh all along right but because it suited her needs if she was fine uh keeping that to herself but now we're seeing that instead of going out of her way and you know eradicating these two when she could have by giving them the opportunity to inject themselves further into their situation um yeah it's it's more or less come back to bite her in the ass and Mm -hmm. and now stunned and sitting there and you know we the readers have a sense of foreboding you know and knowledge uh in in the sense that i don't know about you but i i feel like this isn't gonna end well for her (laughs)
2: yeah
0: <laughs> you know so, exactly so there's definitely a part of me that's that's uh rooting for this to come down hard on her and uh that's that's the pain this is the moment where it pays off is is the moment where she has this moment of realization and it it puts her into a mini crisis because, it hurts her on an emotional level.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of phrasing it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and going that much more for you know whatever that final final blow is when we get the real ultimate payoff, whatever mm-hmm. that may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Shall we move on to section eleven? Let us move on. Char thinks victory is his. But Amuro manages to land a direct hit on the Xiang's torso with his beam rifle. However, the head of the Xiang, which houses the cockpit, detaches as the rest of the body explodes, and Shar manages to escape death, much to Amuro's consternation. Shar flies into a Bawaku and Amuro follows. Cassilia learns that the Xiang's signal has given out she assumes that means Shar is dead she tells her men to show no mercy to any of the mutineers even the ones who surrender and to kill them all and then she gives the order to abandon Abawaku the men are surprised but she says that they don't need the base anymore because they still have Psy 3 and Granada on the moon they've done enough damage to the federation who now have no hope of winning the war the one-armed Gundam flies into the Space Fortress, hot on Char's tail. Even the Xiang's cockpit section has plenty of firepower, however, and Char surprise attacks Amuro, destroying the Gundam's own head. Amuro will not be deterred, saying that all Char did was take out his main camera. Metgloss and Art- the Artasia Loyalists are fighting their way to the command center, hoping to take control of the broadcast system. Sailor's thoughts are still with Shar, who is still flying through the fortress. He hears transmissions about the mutineers and scoffs at their lack of loyalty and principles. As the headless Gundam continues to stalk through the fortress, Shar attacks again from above. The Ziong's head spits beam energy while the Gundam fires its beam rifle upwards at Shar. The right side of the Ziong's head is struck while the Gundam's right leg is blown apart below the knee and both mecha begin to collapse. How's that for a cliffhanger?
0: Yeah, that is a heck of a note to end on, you know, like whew, what what a way to you know culminate this fight between the two of them only to end in in this giant question mark of So who shall live? and who shall die
1: yeah yeah there's something cool about seeing the headless gundam continue to do its thing
0: yeah that entire scene where the gundam's head gets shot off and for amuro to to go and say all he's done is take my main camera it, it's it's that moment where as a reader it feels like oh that's it, it's a wrap, it's over. And then, you know, they pull out one last thing, to just one last Hail Mary for the win, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
0: when he pulls it off by, by just to still use the Gundam and he fires off uh, a pretty uh, final shot, the excitement factor is just up by like 100 at that point. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, that's definitely one of the hypest moments in the anime as well. It's uh, it's an iconic pose. The that, that image of the Gundam pointing, the headless Gundam with one arm pointing the beam rifle upwards. Yeah, you know, th- that image is also used on the back cover of the book. It's it's an iconic image, which is funny to think about because it it shows the Gundam at its worst. You know, it has no
2: head.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> But it's that I guess it's that idea of seeing your hero be battle damaged that's
1: being given up.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's both exciting and inspiring at the same time, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm.
2: it's it's yeah,
0: it's just that sense that there ain't no easy buckets in this game, but exactly in spite of it all. In spite of it all, just keeps going.
1: Yep. No easy buckets. I like that.
0: That's for sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there really isn't much beyond that. Uh, This that entire final battle is super exciting, and it just leaves us. It's the right note to leave us on as we enter Volume Twelve, because Mm -hmm. you know now we are in the final stages of this and. It's just a matter of what's going to happen. Uh, Amra's Gundam is busted. Uh, Char may or may not be dead. That are unanswered.
1: Yeah, we we'll just have to read Volume Twelve to find out. Yep. Any final thoughts as we wrap things up here?
2: Uh,
0: no, I, I think we've I've communicated everything uh, over the course of this episode. Uh, it, it's a heck of an ending, and I'm ready for it, man. This has been a year in the making for us.
2: Mhm.
1: It really has been. Yep. This uh, and this volume has some pretty good extras too, with the with an an essay, and also several pages of Yasuhiko paintings, and those paintings are all pretty dang impressive, in my opinion.
0: I think they were all the covers for all of the previous editions or uh, volumes, right?
1: A couple of them were used as covers. The, the one painting with Shard giving the salute, that was a cover. And then the painting of Selah uh, with her arms bound behind her back, that was a cover as well. But uh, these other the other paintings uh, were not used as covers for these volumes.
0: Okay, okay. Well, these are really nice hard Uh, cover edition so it's always cool when you get these nice little extras and nice uh, hard covers just really makes it feel like you're just getting your money's worth
1: yeah totally man totally yeah
0: yeah well if anyone has anything uh to say if you have any questions or any comments that you'd like to make feel free to hit us up on between the gutters uh podcast at gmail dot com or you could uh hit us up on our instagram at between the gutters uh you can tweet at us um uh, you know while Twitter is still working and <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> good and, point uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, so you know feel free and uh if you happen to be listening to us on uh whatever platform you're listening on if you if you would give us a high rating, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, you know, puts us out there for more people. Uh, you know, hopefully the algorithm uh, picks us up.
2: That's right.
1: So next week, we are going to be discussing a DC comic, right, Albert?
2: It, yes.
0: Next week is also our 150th episode. It's a big. Big deal.
2: The biggest (laughs) deal.
0: There has never been bigger than this deal.
1: (laughs) It's gonna be huge.
0: It's gonna be huge. You're gonna win so much. You're gonna be so tired of winning. Yeah. We we thought we would celebrate our hundredth episode by slamming on a comic that uh for one of our uh uh this honorable mentions list which we haven't <laughs> done in a while what better way to celebrate 150 episodes by <laughs> doing the thing that we love Trapping on comics
1: <laughs> that's right hope to see you guys there thanks for listening everybody this is between the gutters signing out
2: peace